anyone have anything they'd like to share? Oh, I was going to start shaving my legs. But then my mom said if I start too soon, the hairs will grow back faster and thicker. So I didn't. Welcome to Peak Show, where we meet promptly thrice a week at 5 p.m. I'm your host, We Love Kids Club Stan, Brie Rohde, and who is here with me today? Hi, I'm pop culture enthusiast Chelsea Jupin. Hi, Chelsea. Welcome uh, to the show. I'm so excited to have you on because we're talking about the Babysitter's Club. I'm so excited. I'm so excited for this. Although also kind of glad to stop doing my Babysitter's Club uh, research for the show and crying all the time. The amount of times I almost DM'd you saying, how dare you? What have you done to me (laughs) over the past couple of weeks? Uh, It's a lot. You know, I I think, and it really did start with the Netflix series for me, like me realizing just the incredibly positive impact this show has had. It's like a, it's like a warm hug. It's like a warm cup of tea, you know? It definitely is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that this is our first time doing a book series, although, I mean, this isn't just a book series. This is a whole ass franchise with multiple TV shows and movie star and Ellen Bernstein. Yep. And, <laughs> um, but yes, that we're tackling the tween dream of Anna and Martin. And like, if some babysitters club club isms slip into my lexicon for this, it's, it's probably going to happen. Like I, I was trying, I was writing down the names of the ghost writers and I couldn't remember the actual name of the entity. <laughs> Like only oh, their no. their their jokey names, yeah. I love yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> well, and like we have a in Toronto, we have a bike shop called Sweet Pete's, and I was passing by. I'm like, oh, Sweet Pete. Um, <laughs> by the way, people, just last week, if you look it up, Sweet Pete, um, a a car just drove through the front of Sweet Pete's. Not oh, no. not Sweet Pete Laranges. Sweet Pete, yeah, the bicycle I, shop. As far as we know, though, actually, yeah. Who knows? <laughs> he seems like a very cool man, Pete Laranges. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but so, yeah, the um, I, I Chelsea, I'm having you on because when I was on Facebook, I back before I got rid of that cursed thing, um, <laughs> we were both in a Facebook group for fans of the awesome podcast, The Babysitter's Club Club, now known as Strange Bedfellow, since they have sadly moved on from The Babysitter's Club. I remember thinking, oh, Chelsea Jupin, that name sounds familiar because you had just been on an episode of We Hate Movies. And I was so delighted. I was like, oh, world's colliding. Yeah, it's the the Facebook group for The Babysitter's Club podcast was one of those like really good. I mean, probably still is. I, I don't keep up with it. Uh, yeah. But just a good pocket of good people who like the Babysitter's Club. Yeah. Uh, I think it was all that was keeping me on Facebook at one point. <laughs> <laughs> so um, we have this tradition on Peak Show in which our guests tell us about a moment that was peak them. So, I mean, we've had people talking about horrible accidents or, you know, Helen who trained her cat to turn off light switches. So, Chelsea, I ask you, can you tell us about a moment in your life that was peak Chelsea? Sure. I'm uh, I'm kind of bad at these kind of things because I always want it to be like everything. Like it needs <laughs> to be a time when I was bossy, but also a little insecure. And when I was in New York and with a dog and love musical theater. So realizing that perhaps I'm setting my own bar too high, I did then think of a time where a whole bunch of uh, the things I loved the most sort of came together. And that was uh, when my best friend uh, took me. This was in, I think, 20. 20- 14 uh, to go see the Saved by the Bell parody musical 
at uh, a, a small theater. Yeah. At oh. a small theater here in New York. Um, I think there's actually a few. They're all varying degrees of authorized and not at all authorized. This one, I think, was somewhere in the middle because later in the run, Dennis Haskins did appear in it. Um, I did not see him. But anyway, uh, spoilers for this random Save by the Bell parody musical, but they do the I'm so excited moment with Rose's turn in Gypsy, this big, huge musical theater moment. And I just felt like I was in my element. I was like, this is all I wanted is 90s nostalgia meets Sondheim, musical theater in a tiny New York uh, theater. That was that was a great time. That sounds great. wonderful. It was. I really would not be opposed to like a tiny, unlicensed um, Babysitter's Club musical perform musical theater thing. Yeah, I would love it. I'm sure it exists. And I'm sure Anna I'm, Martin would embrace it. <laughs> I think so. Yes. Absolutely. Um, so before we dive into the history of the Babysitter's Club and all into our fields, I um, wanted to start by talking with your history and like feel free to digress. Peak Show is a pro digressions podcast. Um, <laughs> but can you tell me about like your history with the BSC when you first got into the book series and kind of what your consumption was like over the years? Sure. So I got into them through the Little Sisters books first. Aww. Yeah, I found some of the Karen books in, it was either my school library or like, you know, those little class libraries where they just kind of set up like a pile of books in the corner or something like that. Uh, and I think it was, as best as I can remember, about 1992, and I was about eight, mm -hmm. I switched to the Babysitter's Club a little uh, thereafter and then did for a little while keep up with both of them and try, you know, because I was, sort of between their ages, I was like, I don't know, am I a Babysitter's Club member or am I a little <laughs> sister? And eventually, of course, the, the answer did become Babysitter's Club. I was a voracious reader. I was a really indoorsy kid. I didn't really have much going on other than reading. Uh, you know, I wasn't on a sports team or anything. So my parents were totally on board with the Babysitter's Club being my cheap little hobby. We would go to the bookstore, uh, probably once a month or so, I guess. And I would go and get to get a couple new of the latest Babysitter's Club books. Uh, and I just loved them. I mm. loved them. They stuck with me. Uh, I had also watched like the HBO show. Uh, it only in the U.S. aired at the time on Disney Channel. I don't think it even aired on our HBO at first, but I might be totally wrong about that. Um, and I did really enjoy that at the time, but also... We only got the Disney Channel on like free weekends. So you would just have to like watch as much content as you possibly could <laughs> and tape it all on VHS. The, the stuff that you wanted, you could you could keep watching. Yeah. Uh, so so I can't say that it's the most uh, logical viewing pattern that I had of, of sort of binging before people were binging TV shows uh, in, you know, the 90s. I can dig uh, it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's been about, you know, I, I sort of kept. I probably stopped reading the books when I was about uh, 10 or 11, maybe, uh, when I started to feel like I was too old for them, mm -hmm. um, whatever that meant to me at the time, uh, and then got sort of back into it uh, through the Babysitter's Club Club podcast. I had read an article about that and having already listened to the Gilmore Guys uh, podcast, I was like, all right, I guess my thing is I like guys <laughs> mansplaining uh, nostalgic women material to me. Oh, no. uh, but I love the Babysitter's Club Club podcast, uh, which we were already talking about. It was so much fun. 
and did really reignite my love of the series before the Netflix series came out. I do feel like it's a weird thing where as popular as it was, not a lot of people talked about it. And then I think kind of the graphic novel as well as the summer before coming out maybe reignited a little bit of nostalgia. And um, you like... I want to say in like the web 2.0 years, there were a few little blogs here of like Claudia's Closet and stuff like that. Yes. I followed a couple tumblers. I remember. It was nice to find like a centralized community around it. Um, So for me and like a a tradition seeming the peak show is that I always say like, oh, yes, I got into this really inappropriate thing at a very young age. Like I (laughs) just said on the last episode that I started watching South Park when I was eight. Um, (laughs) That's... I don't know if you have siblings, but uh, being the youngest sibling and... I'm I'm an eldest, so oh, I, no. if anything, instead uh, yeah. would, would sort of end up still watching the baby things for a little too mm. long because I was like, well, I, I have a sister. She's granted two years younger than me. It's nothing... Uh, but yeah, so I I didn't have the older sibling getting me into inappropriate stuff. Yeah. And, and also, like, it, it wasn't even so much that my sister was getting me into things. It was that uh, having older siblings, I was on a constant quest to prove how mature I was. And sure. Yeah. But so I think the Babysitter's Club might be the only instance on the show of me getting into something at a completely normal age and appropriate age. <laughs> and even, I will say, holding on for it for a little too, holding on to it for a little too long. Like, and I, because I was also a reader. And, you know, I did my thing of like getting into Little Women and getting like I got into Victorian novels at an inappropriate age, but I still like was at a point of hiding Babysitter's Club books in my locker in middle school. Um, So I think I was about five and I saw an episode of the HBO series must have been on VHS because this was well after it had come out um, at a party my brother's hockey team like the coach had a party at his house or whatever and all the sisters it's like okay all the girls go off and you know, do your own <laughs> thing and so we we're watching it it was the babysitters remember and so that was a good because that also like introduces you to all the characters pretty evenly mm. and um my sister had about 50 books of this from the series i don't think she read a lot of them i think it was just the kind of thing that they buy like oh yeah this kid's eight or nine let's 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 give her some books yeah. um and uh, for a couple of years, I could only get my hands on the Little Sisters books. Um, even then, I hated Karen, I have to say. I found her <laughs> very pretentious. Um, I kind of love Karen. I always thought she was just really silly and wacky. <laughs> and man, the Netflix portrayal of Karen oh. is perfection. And I adore that little actress. I also think like as um, amazingly kind of on point and awesome as that portrayal is, uh, Little S- Sophia is her name. I think um sophie sophie something yeah i told myself before you start the episode make sure you open the cast list because you're going to be talking about these kids yeah and you want to actually use their names because that's nicer than calling them their characters names and she is canadian i I should know that um and and a ballet dancer but um no it's that the way they made karen she's a little over the top but having like i work with kids a lot there are so many kids like that they're just like a little too (laughs) smart for their own good and they have this like early sardonic sense of humor and i just you you adore them but um it was and again this is a thing i kind of forgot about my childhood until i was doing this um it was really hard to get your hands on english books in my uh in my school because uh in 
I don't know if it's just Ontario that does it like this or if it's all of Canada, but I uh, was in the French immersion system, which is oh, okay. it's a French as a second language thing. And like my mother's Anglophone, my father's Francophone. And it actually it's a weird system because it starts you out like kindergarten and JK and first grade. You're doing like 100 percent of the day in French. And then slowly you start doing just an English class. And then by second grade, your math class is in English as well. But you start out doing all French. And then by the time you are in high school, you're just doing like one or two subjects a day in French. And it's basically to like, because your other alternative is your French classic is the mo- class is the most basic thing. And you end up like my husband who doesn't know all his days of the week in French. Um, That's kind of how the, the language program worked where I grew up in okay. Miami, Florida. Uh, you know, I, I know the words for a bunch of fruits in Spanish, but that's about all that I can really yeah. uh, maintain. Yeah. Like they restart you every year at zero, um, yeah. which is, it's sucky. So I was really happy to, you know, make my grandparents proud by speaking French. But as a result, in when you're still in like the second and third grade and you're doing the majority of your day in French, um, they don't let English novels in the classroom. Like they that's don't. That's so interesting. Yeah. Like I think by, you know, the, fifth grade or whatever, I could have an English book for silent reading or something. But um, it was hard to get my hands. Like when we went to the library, we had to check out French books. So um, the first book I did manage to get, and I think it was because I checked it out outside of class hours, was Mallory and the Trouble with Twins. Uh, I famously failed to return it to my school library over and over. And yeah, like I said, I held on to the books for way too long. Like by the time I was in fifth grade, I knew I'm too old for these books, but I'm still going to read them. Um, And I did also enjoy the California Diaries uh, quite a bit because I was going through my edgelord stage. Yeah, those I'm a little older than you. Those were coming out when I was sort of a little further removed from the Babysitter's Club. So I never got into them. I only know that I'm through the Babysitter's Club Club podcast and was delighted uh, by everything. I I was I grew up in I hate to say it like because I love where I'm from but a very anti intellectual area like the Northeast Ontario like I would compare to like the the rural Midwest and this is fresh in my mind because I was just in northeastern or northwestern Ohio and I'm just like oh this is a lot like where I grew up except maybe a bit more Jesusy um, <laughs> but um, like being being a reader and being teased for being a reader where I was growing up was like the worst thing that could befall a child so. I was, um, it was surprising to me when I grew up and found out, oh my gosh, there were people who were that into the BSC and like not feeling alone. I was excited to see how excited people were for the Netflix series. It's, it's kind of like when I went to university and I learned that other people really liked the Simpsons because no one liked the Simpsons where I was growing up. So yeah. Yeah. Um, I was, you know, I was a dorky little nerd girl, but I just, I loved them so much and I think with like knowing that like the Friends Forever series have come out, I'm like, I just want to know what happens. I just want to know, <laughs> are they going to get to graduate? Are they yeah. going to get to turn 14? <laughs> Will they be released from Amber as the... As the- <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, so, and, and like, I, I don't know, I'm curious, did you read like the other kind of big tweeny novels of the day, like the Sweet Valley books and stuff? I did. And similarly with the Sweet Valley books went from... Uh, in that case, kids to teens to Heidi University. They kept they kept that one going a oh, long yeah. time. Um, I also read the Saddle Club books. I was a little bit, I was an aspiring horse girl. <laughs> I didn't have regular access to horses. If I did, I definitely would have been a horse girl. Um, I think those were my big three series that I read as a kid. 
I unless was, I'm missing anything. I was very much not a horse girl. Um, I've said it on this podcast. I think horses are the most beautiful animals, but if I am within like a hundred feet of them, I find them terrifying. I just they're too muscular. They're they're too muscular. They they are pretty scary. I everyone who is scared of them, I think, has the right idea, and I should be a little more afraid of them, especially because I've only horseback ridden a few times. But I feel like. We get each other, me and horses. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like I said, aspiring horse girl who just didn't have access to horses. I am also very much afraid of everything and most comfortable when enclosed by a powerful fence. So I relate to horses, but um, yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, the history section, aka Brie charmingly reading Wikipedia. Um, now uh, that so. It was when I was kind of looking up like the oral history of the BSC that, and I should have known that BSC wasn't Anna Martin's original idea. She was just contracted out by Scholastic to, uh, by um, editor Jean Fywell because they wanted to do a, the publishing house wanted to do a book about either a babysitter or babysitters, um, which makes sense because Anna Martin's career up until that point had essentially been a writer for hire in the youth and young adults uh, world. This was by far her most successful endeavor, though. Um, it was initially ordered as a four-book series, grew and grew in popularity as more were ordered. So she came up with the uh, characters, plots, concepts, all original works. Uh, and she, of the 250 titles under the BSC banner, she is she estimates herself that she wrote between 60 and 80. Obviously, other ghostwriters, including the aforementioned Sweet Peter Lorangis, Nola Thacker, Jana Miles... Um, Fun fact about David Levitan, who was not a ghostwriter, but he was uh, one of these supervising editors at Scholastic and, you know, deep knowledge of the character Bible. Um, I just put this together because of the wonderful podcast that's This Ends at Prom. He wrote the book version of Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist. Or he was one of the writers. There's two writers. on There's a male writer and the female writer. He wrote the Nick Perspectives. Oh, that's funny. I yeah. didn't realize that. I um I haven't read the book. I know it predates the movie, but I really liked the movie. And then by the time I went to find the book, um, all the book covers were covered in like the movie poster art. And I'm like, oh, I don't want to be reading this. Like, yeah, no, it's uh, agreed. Yeah. That's the right decision. So every time. Yeah. Um, but it was uh, after about a dozen uh, issues that Anna Martin decided to freeze the girls in Amber and make them 13 forever because she wanted to continue to appeal to tween girls forever, which as much as we make fun of it, that that is the right move, you know? Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. I I definitely approve of the decision as much as I don't understand the decision. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it does limit you when you want to do like a Christmas book and a graduation book. But, right. Um, but it also doesn't because they would just have multiple Christmases and multiple Halloweens yeah. and multiple summer vacations. So and if you just pretend then it's fine. And I do feel like it, and you especially see this like with the with the TV series like uh, come to this kind of full circle moment, but it becomes more and more about 13 year old girls navigating these modern times. And so like, that's why the conflicts they do in the books that are written in 199 are very different from the conflicts in 1986. Um, so of the various spinoffs and extra books, the first extra book under the extended banner was uh, super special babysitters on board in July, 1988. Um, and then the first formal spinoff also 98, 1988 was uh the babysitter's little sister which i was surprised that ran until 2000 so that ran that's as long as the original series that is surprising wow okay we good make for, fun of karen, karen. But, you know or i make fun of karen but um <laughs> I, I make fun of karen yeah <laughs> don't get me wrong um but i love her 
The Mysteries debuted in 1991, and I was thinking as, man, like every tween book had to have a mystery counterpart. In, like, oh, of course. I even remember- If you weren't like, solving mysteries as a middle schooler, what were you doing according to children's literature? Like when I when I took my babysitting course with the Red, Red Cross or whatever it was that I did it through, I was like, okay, so when do we cover jewel heists? <laughs> <laughs> So. I'm like, actually, that doesn't happen as often as you think it would. <laughs> you, you know what didn't happen nearly as often as I thought it would with babysitting anything? Like, they, <laughs> those courses really prepared me for hours and hours of um, of sitting and watching uh, Dora the Explorer with um, a grumpy French kid. <laughs> uh, actually, I, I should ask you, did you babysit a lot in your youth? Uh, only a few times because I was not very good at it. Oh. Uh, and unfortunately, part of it is because the books led me to believe that the time to start doing that was 13, which was way, way too early for me uh, as a, th- you know, all I had done in terms of preparing <laughs> was read Babysitter's Club books. And uh, I babysat, the first time I ever babysat was uh, three girls who I knew through my church and they were uh, like six and five maybe, and then a newborn. And I was not prepared for that newborn. I did not know how to change her diaper. It was very lumpy and didn't stick together correctly. Uh I had to make them pizza uh, in the oven. I had never used an oven before. I had never, you know, made anything. I left the cardboard in because I didn't know. Uh, So it it was a disaster and I was not asked back. Uh, (laughs) But then I... (laughs) After a while, after the sting of that wore off, I did babysit a few other times when it would come up. But I, after that, did not any dreams of starting my own babysitter's club <laughs> and, and being, you know, starting a babysitting empire in Miami was squashed. <laughs> that was not for me. This line is going to come up a couple times here at this episode. And I will say, dear Chelsea and dear audience, do not feel sorry for me when I say this. I didn't have enough friends to form a babysitter's club. (laughs) I was a very friendless child. um, And I was friendless from an early enough age to be okay with it by the time I was a tween. Um, I actually did start babysitting quite young, um, but I think I was eased into it just... I fortunately was not given three kids, including a newborn, (laughs) as my first job. Like um, I was able to... I think... My birthday is in mid-June and I saw an advertisement on like our local bulletin. Uh, like, our, I don't know if they have these in the States, but there was always like a TV channel that just had like the local bulletin announcements flashing by and yeah, said you can, you know, oh, there's this babysitting course. It starts, you know, June 25th through the Red Cross and you have for ages 11 and up. And I was just like, oh, fuck yeah, I'm turning 11 on June 18th. <laughs> like this is, um, so that was, um, and it was really extensive. I think probably because it was put on by the Red Cross and like had like even first responders teaching you like Heimlich training and stuff. And a lot of it was teaching us like time management and how to talk to kids of a certain age. And like even here are the questions you need to ask the parents. Like, is it appropriate for me to give your child a bath and stuff? So um, I think the, the kid I babysat most was my voice teacher's son, because like when I was 14, he was three. He recently added me on Instagram now because he is, I guess, 22. And Oof. I'm just like, who the fuck is this? Like, I hate to say it, fuck boy. Like, who's this <laughs> University of Ottawa fuck boy who's trying to add me on Instagram? Yeah. I'm so sorry, kid. <laughs> like, 
hey, if I'm just like, I'm not going to say anything. I will accept the request. But it's like, you have pooped yourself in front of me many times. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, like I always had a part-time job after school and then I was dancing constantly anyway. But it was a thing where like I was the one far more than my brother that my mom trusted me like yeah Brie can babysit for you or whatever um and it was it was usually like people from my mom's church and stuff um I think I was also really really blessed to have extremely well-behaved children that I babysat like I never had to deal with a crazy picky eater I never had to deal with kids who wanted to stay up super late so um but it did prepare me very well for teaching dance because um, dance is a far more structured environment than the home. Sure. So, um, yeah, like it wasn't, I think it was the Babysitter's Club that made me want to start babysitting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I did end up, uh, what I did more than babysitting, because that proved to be a little too much, uh, I was always like a, a helper in vacation Bible school. I did end up being a camp counselor. Oh, that's great. Uh, so, so that element of taking care of people seemed a little easier to do, a little more structure, uh, the one-on-one-ness or one-on-three, as it were, of babysitting was a little <laughs> too much. Yeah, I was sometimes given those, especially like um, with, uh, I I only went to camp once and it was orchestra camp um, because that was the kind of childhood I had. Um, I um, also was made a brass leader for my, uh, like the youth orchestra, but I was given the kids with behavioral issues. Um, okay. Don't give kids with behavioral in- issues instruments and expect especially brass a- or yeah. or if you do, certainly don't stick them with an 18 year old to supervise them. Yeah. She, she will not know what to do. She will start crying. <laughs> oh, God. Uh. Yeah. So um, with uh, the there was, I guess, a brief. Oh, I should say, because I love I'm a by the numbers kind of gal. More than 190 million copies in print across 250 Amazing. titles. That is fantastic. Um yep. I did read the Quebecois versions in the few. I that wondered I was able when you were talking about if you'd ever read any of them in French. Um, yeah, and with Quebec media, and I think um, this is always hard to explain to Americans, but Quebec is almost an entirely different country, and mm-hmm. especially as it relates to its media, because it's all about preserving the French language. And I grew up near the Quebec border, so that's why I had access to all this. But um, it's like um, if uh, if you want like an uncanny valley thing look up the look at up an image of the quebec version of brooklyn 99 it's they all look like <laughs> sims it's super weird um, oh my goodness okay but so they've changed stony brook to like the te- uh i think it's uh nouvelle quebec and so of course the closest analog you can have with making stacy from new york city is maker from toronto Having lived in Toronto for 10 years and now just finally left, I'm just like, I find it really hard to make Toronto seem all that sophisticated. Like, uh, I I know people who aren't from Toronto like Toronto a lot and think it's like, I mean, last time I was in New York, I told a girl from Seoul, oh, I'm from Toronto. She's like, oh, I heard Toronto's really clean. I'm like, is it? Is it? Like, um, uh, I, So I've never been. I know my husband loves Toronto. Um, I've heard nothing but good things from all the people who have gone. I just have none yeah. to contribute. It's a, not it's a fine there. place, actually. More hilarious aspect is Dawn. You would think the obvious thing with Dawn would be to make her from Vancouver or something, because sure. that's where all our hippies live and whatever, or like even say she's she's from, like it would be cool to make her an East Coast gal, because you know the Canadian East Coast is very colorful and nifty. 
They made her from Hull, which is now known as Gatineau. Um, Gatineau is like the city, like Ottawa is right on the Quebec border as well. And then Gatineau is just the city on the other side. Like if you live in Gatineau, that's basically like living in Ottawa. You probably work for the federal government or whatever. Um, it is, there's nothing there. The, so it's, it's not also not very exotic. Nothing. I wouldn't even call it a sub. I think the Museum of Natural History is there, and that is a pretty great museum. But um, yeah, like there's nothing exciting about Ottawa either. Like I love Ottawa. My <laughs> brother lives there. There's nothing cool about it. Like yeah. Um. So yeah, and I think Dawn's name is Diane, which I always think like there are a lot of young girls named Diane or Diane these days. But uh, <laughs> so uh, in terms of on-screen spinoffs, uh, there was the 1990 13 episode HBO series aforementioned um i do not have any ratings information for that probably because it is too old there was the movie in 1995 again uh ellen bernstein in it that's that's a throwback i did not remember um, yes and sissy spacex daughter is christy yes. and larissa olenik is dawn and rachel, and rachel Lee Lee cook, cook? Yes, just pre this all okay. she's all that um yes yeah and um well, I know with um, with Sissy Spacek's daughter, um, she eventually became a singer, and yes. yeah, she did did some like folky stuff with Joshua Radin. I was like, hey, that's cool that she went on to go do do stuff that I listen to now. Um, but yeah, that was a bit of a box office bomb. It brought in less than ten million, and then in 2019, Walden Media produced a ten episode series for Netflix. Um, also, no ratings information on that because it's effing Netflix, and they will not tell you how many people watch something. Um, I have a lot of issues with Netflix, and I gotta stop myself from going on a Netflix tangent. <laughs> but um, that said, after the second season, and it was somewhat abruptly canceled, I would highly recommend the interview that Rachel Shuker did in Vulture about it being canceled because she does go into very succinctly and frankly with a lot of the issues I've had with Netflix over the years and how like. There's essentially no accountability. What it renews and cancels is essentially down to an algorithm. Um, and I also kind of respect that she's like, she acknowledged like we couldn't wait too long between series. Like they, they, the girls are getting older. And honestly, working with tweens, as we've seen with Stranger Things, like that's a ticking time bomb. At yeah. some point, they're going to come back and look 16, um, especially like... Um, Puberty for girls can be really sudden, uh, unless you're me, and then it just never happens. Um, right, I, same. <laughs> God, like, yeah, people like I told someone, oh, yeah, I'm going to be 33 on Saturday. They're like, what? And it's not, it's not flattering yet. That is not flattering yeah. yet in the, at this point in my life. You miss the window then the second it stops because I'm, I'm 38 now, and and I feel like I'm starting to finally kind of look at a little more. I mean, I'm still also pretty short, so that makes me read a little smaller too yeah. but the second the like oh my gosh you're how old goes away you desperately miss it yeah. so, so enjoy them now i i'm trying on that note though and speaking of babysitters club one thing i always found the um the cover art by uh by hodges um he made those girls look like 20 sometimes and i don't know if that was just 80s style that i'm not used to but i'm like yeah Dawn looks like a pack a day smoker like, yeah, they they did always look a lot older. And that was one of the things that I loved so much about the uh, the Netflix series, especially oh, yeah. the first season, is they look like what I think at least 13 year old girls look like. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I'm bad at guessing kids ages in general. So, you know, uh, I, I won't pretend that I 
am an expert in saying they look 13, but I think they do, certainly more so than the 1990 TV show where they are all significantly older looking. And it's hard for me to go back and see these things and, and remember, are they older looking than that? Or is it just that they were older than me when I saw it? And so now they are permanently older than me. (laughs) Um, you know, like I could probably watch it now. I'm old enough to be their parents and I'd still be like, no, they're grown ups. So who knows? Yeah. And again, like kids do look wildly different. Like that's why like when the few times I've adjudicated at dance competitions, I hate the 12 to 14 category because some kids come in looking they're 12 and they look 10. And then some of them are 14 and they look 17. Um, Like my my last um, at the last studio I taught at my favorite kid and I can say that she's my favorite kid because she's not my student anymore. Um, <laughs> she was five foot 11 at 13. Like, oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah. She's uh, she was a very statuesque child. But I'm just like, I wouldn't think you're 13. What the fuck? Like, that's the group I work with most often. But I do agree that the, that the series was so well cast and like they look 13. They act 13. Like, because a lot of yes. like. Yeah, and we'll we'll get into it surely. But a lot of the plots in the Babysitters Club were revolved around these girls having so much autonomy and so much trust from the, the adults in their lives that it really yes. built up thirteen to feel like it was going to be a lot more independence for me and not just like sitting, you know, in my dark computer room watching Homestar Runner. Like, <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. My thirteen did not look like what Anna M. Martin promised me thirteen was going to be. <laughs> no, uh, it was it was much much quieter, much sadder, much, much more pitiful and about just a lot more homework and parents and parents telling you to do your homework and stuff like that. Yeah. And honestly, when I look back at the amount of work I had to do, like, and, you know, I, I don't begrudge people who didn't have to work in high school, but I was, you know, I had a part-time job as early as grade nine because I couldn't afford, like my family couldn't afford for me to not have a job. Um, When I look at that and, you know, the, um, like the amount of homework I did, I was basically told like, okay, you get one extracurricular. And that was, that was dance. And even that was like hard to squeeze in. And I'm just like, I'm doing my homework bef- like at 5am before, before school and stuff. So I'm like these, what, what kind of time did these children have to be babysitting and running an empire and taking art yeah. classes, and, you know, managing their diabetes? Like <laughs> they are much better at time management than I not just was but am oh yeah like (laughs) but uh, like and the last thing i'll say on casting which i really like because i've um i was recently re-watching the oc at the uh at the advising of friend of the show mint you know that's a really good solid rewatch when you just want to turn your brain all the way down people say that and that's you know it's definitely one I'm going to go back to at some point. Similarly to Breaking Bad with Mexico, whenever they're in Chino, where um, where the lead character is uh, is from, everything's yellow. Like, yeah, there's tint at all. <laughs> um, but I was thinking about like the casting of um, of high school students and stuff, and how like you know, obviously it's partially a labor issue because you want people to be above 18. You don't want to be employing child labor. But then I also feel like when now when I watch or when I hear about things like euphoria or like that show 13 Reasons Why and stuff, and I see like these are students, like high school students who are doing things that are very inappropriate for students to be doing. Like, and yes, I am very protective over kids, but I'm like, is the fact that they're being played by a borderline 30-year-old, is that like softening the blow a little bit? Does that make it seem more normal? And I can say from the perspective of a young watcher, yeah, like it doesn't seem nearly as inappropriate to be 
literally watching teenagers about to have sex or whatever because they're so like and obviously at 13 hopefully the characters aren't dealing with that kind of content anyway but i feel like it's good to not make them these aspirational uh, like mini adults you know and actually say like these are 13 year olds who are having to do 13 year old things depend on their parents for rides and hang out at each other's houses or whatever like it's it's a way less uncomfortable watch yeah yeah, absolutely. That makes a, a ton of sense to me. And the 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 idea of casting the older actors to make it a little more comfortable is is something that I definitely do think has to play into it uh, at some point. I am in the middle of my rewatch is uh, a Dawson's Creek rewatch. Oh, and that's another one where every step of the way again, I'm 38 now. But I still feel like they are all older than me in every season yep. that I watch, even though they're 24, 25. <laughs> They're not 15, 16, which is a problem sometimes, yes. but uh, more so with, with James Vanderbeek. He kind of never really looks like he's in high school at any point on that show. I think uh, I think all those shows gave me a really um, skewed idea also of how pretty everyone would be in high school. Like, yeah, I was just looking at my grade nine yearbook um, and I don't remember why, um, but uh, I was like, we are all so ugly. Oh my god! <laughs> Even the cute ones are ugly. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, so I guess the the most basic question, and I'm sure there's not a basic answer, but who is your favorite babysitter in the Babysitters Club? It's so hard. Uh, so to pick favorite. Ugh. I don't know. You even gave me this question and I have thought about it, but still I'm like, am I ready to say that this one's my favorite? So what I'll say uh, in terms of, you know, I think a lot of us tend to categorize ourselves as being, uh, you know, a Christie, a Claudia. Uh, I am a Marianne through and through. Mm -hmm. I'm a crybaby. I'm uh, kind of sensitive, a little too much so possibly. Uh, I'm a kind of shyer, quieter kid like Marianne. Uh, she also was as in awe of Stacy McGill as I was. That's <laughs> where I where I come to say, uh, you know, who is my favorite? Because at the same time, Stacy McGill was just the coolest human being who I could imagine. She was largely responsible for me wanting to move to New York, which is where I still live to this day. Mm -hmm. uh, she so she's just she's the best. I don't know. They're all the best. Uh, it's so hard. <laughs> I am. I think I, I, I don't know if you're an astrology person. I only vaguely am, but I'm uh, a Marianne with a Mallory rising and a Christy moon. Oh my gosh. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was just having a conversation with my colleague about this today. I like astrology as a joke, but I will believe anything you say about Gemini's, especially when they're like, Gemini's are the worst because they're duplicitous and overbearing. You're like, yeah, they got my number. <laughs> like, um, yeah. Uh, so I always like had to be so damn different and so damn contrarian. For a long time, I maintained that my favorite was Mallory. And I think I might be yeah. the only person who ever said my favorite was Mallory. Um, and I could relate to Mallory a lot because... Um, like so much of her identity is about always being the outsider and being a little off. Like she can't define herself within a big family. She's the youngest in the BSC. Um, like she didn't have a flashy talent like Jesse. Like that was the other big thing for me as a kid was I friendless. Again, no one should feel sorry for me. I turned out fine. <laughs> Not particularly talented. 
And that was hard. Like, I, I will say I was a talented pianist and a talented classical singer. No one cares about that, especially when you're 11. No one yeah. cares about that. And yeah. I'm not particularly good at pop singing. So like, it's like, oh, here's my little 11 year old. She can do a German leader song. Who the fuck cares? Um, <laughs> and like, I didn't have a particularly big family. I had three siblings, but it was like a loud house and like trying to stand out and find your identity was this really difficult thing. Um, and even like I was very involved in dance and I was a competitive dancer. I was not very good. Like I was, you know, I, I, I took until I was 25 to learn to do a triple pirouette. So, um, yeah, like I thought I had so much sympathy for Mallory. She always like had her nose in a, her nose in a book. Um, I also thought Mallory was low-key very funny. So when I got older and did start reading like those little blogs and stuff about the Babysitter's Club and I learned that Mallory is like universally panned and I'm like, no, you guys don't get it. You absolutely yeah. don't get it. <laughs> I'm with you. I am a definite Mallory apologist. Similarly, I, I did identify with her as well as Marianne, part of the bookishness and the, uh, you know, quietness. Mm -hmm. She also, Mallory, also an aspiring horse girl. We had that in common. <laughs> and uh, I haven't reread any of Mallory books in ages. I've, I've reread the first five for this and she doesn't appear. Um, but on the TV show, I think I laughed at every single thing that Mallory said. She's such a that, weirdo. Like in that a actress good way. too, Vivian Watson has such great comedic timing. Yeah, and as a child, it's so unfair. So yeah, I'm not going to pan Mallory. I love no. Mallory. Uh, Vivian Watson also like facially and in terms of her eyes, especially, really reminds me of Sadie Sink. Like just like five years yes. younger. Um, yes. And Sadie Sink, especially with this latest season of, of Stranger Things and the All Too Well video, she's like my favorite person on the planet right now. So yeah, um, but <laughs> she's pretty great. I am definitely ready if they need to like how they had the younger version of Eleven on this season. If they needed for some reason a younger version of um, Max. <laughs> Max. Thank you. Uh, absolutely. First phone call should be to Vivian Watson. Yeah. Um, uh, also, much like TV Mallory, when I get excited, I start speaking really quickly. So um, like the adaptation of Mallory was interesting because I thought they were going to go with someone a bit more mousy because like Mallory was often kind of mousy and moody and whatever. But I preferred them making her this kind of type A, like aggressively trying to set herself apart. I also really like what they did with the adaptation of Jesse because Jesse was such a blank canvas character that I felt like depending on the book, her personality kind of changed depending on what they needed her to be. Um, yeah. And she like, I wish we'd gotten more Jesse. Obviously, she didn't really become a character until the second season. But I liked the one episode that focused on her. I love the updating of the super rat. Like instead of a movie star, he's a TikTok Gosh. star. Like that's really yes. cute and believable. Like. All of the updates that they did, I feel like everyone, I was like, of course, that's perfect. Mm -hmm. You made the right decision on every. It's such a shame that the show isn't going to keep getting made. I'm just going to oh, just yeah. keep feeling more and more disappointed as we record. I wish they, they'd done like a super special or something like. Oh, uh, my God. Mm -hmm. If I could have seen them come to New York and do the New York Here We Come super <laughs> special, it would have been. A dream come true. Yeah, I that actually I'm kind of remembering because I didn't go to New York for the first time until I was 14 or 15. And um, a lot of what I knew about New York tourism was based on those books, actually, because <laughs> Stacy basically lives a New York tourist's life. 
Um, yes. Which is really funny because Anna Martin is like was a longtime New Yorker. So you'd think it would have been a bit more inside baseball. But then I remember she's writing it for kids who. Exactly. Yeah. Um, she was writing it for me in Miami, who just sort of knows that New York is a big city. And if she were to throw in a like reference to a neighborhood, I'd have been like, I'm sorry, where is the Upper West Side of what? Yeah. I don't understand. So. Like how rich were the McGills? I do not know. <laughs> That's another thing that I do really appreciate about the Netflix show is that they're all pretty. I mean, obviously not all of them. Some of them are, you know, kind of struggling for money, but it does paint the show as being pretty affluent, which given that they live in suburban Connecticut Connecticut, makes sense. Um, And definitely wasn't something that I really picked up on or remember picking up on uh, reading the books as a kid. Granted, maybe it's just because I was sort of copying and pasting them into the same sort of like middle-class life that I had. Um, but it, it felt real to sort of say, yeah, some of these kids are really stinking rich. Yeah. And the fact that like almost ever, I was thinking almost everyone in those books, their dad, their dads were lawyers. And it's like Anna Martin could not think of a, another like affluent <laughs> yeah. career. Doctor would make them too busy and stressed. So, cause I know right. I'm pretty sure Claudia's dad is a lawyer. Stacy's dad is a lawyer. Mr. Pike was was a lawyer, and yeah, Mr. Spears' dad is yeah. a lawyer. Yeah, uh, obviously, and Mr. Spears stayed a lawyer, but Stony yes. Brook is a litigious place, I guess. I get it, you know. And again, to how I, it was sort of easy to just sort of copy and paste it into my own life. My dad is a lawyer, okay. so I guess for me, I was like, "Yep, this is what dads do. They're lawyers." And then you, <laughs> I'm just like, could could someone be an engineer? Because I, <laughs> as as the child of an engineer, like I will say engineers are some of the quirkiest weirdest people in the world and every mm-hmm. time i meet another person who's like oh yeah my dad was an engineer i'm just like oh my god like we have so much to talk <laughs> about like can can we talk about how like my dad alphabetized everything in a really really weird way like can we talk yeah. about the way my dad would take five hours to do something because everything had to be super precise um so um like i know that they made um well, they made Stacy's dad be in marketing, which is a little bit right. more believable and very, very New York. So, um, yeah, like, but I think nevertheless, money is still at least acknowledged to be a thing in the series. Because sure, I feel like you kind of don't have a choice but to be like you can't be class class blind anymore in anything you do. Um, yeah, because like now as a person who like I mean I do okay now, but my the first ten years of my career I was really struggling and. When I watch people like living fictional lives on TV for a long time, I'm just like stressed. I'm like, how are they affording to do this? How are they not like just checking their bank account all the time? Like, yes, all of the especially young people living in New York City shows. (sighs) I would watch them as a young person living in New York City. And I was like, I can barely afford the cable to be watching this show. (laughs) What are they like? How? 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 Yeah. <laughs> is, is all I wanted to know. So I really like that they made Jesse's family uh, like really distinctly middle class and showed that like dance was a big commitment for them because dance is it, it's draining. It is so draining. Um, I also uh, like I've talked about this with friend friend of the show, Jose, who is also a huge Babysitter's Club fan. Um, nice. Uh, he was saying like, I, I don't think other people really care that much about this, but I actually like that they made Jesse a little bit less talented than she is portrayed as in the books because I can't think of a single 11-year-old that would or should be doing Capelia as a lead. Like, Capelia is a variation that you would give a younger kid, but still probably around 12 or 13. Um, Right, and And especially not an 11-year-old who is also a busy babysitter, you know? If it were an 11-year-old 
it would presumably be an 11 year old who didn't really do much else other than dance. I would have to imagine. I have no dance background, so I am contributing this as just <laughs> a person who has watched Center Stage a bunch. Oh. Center stage. Oh, I love center stage <laughs> that, so much. Oh, that's a great one. I I am at Perfect. least now one degree removed from Ethan Stiefel because one of my ballet, one of my pre pro ballet students, he taught her a couple summers ago, and he has really long hair and like a walrus mustache now. I have seen the the crazy mustache yeah. that he does now. Yeah, he's apparently it's... a very nice gentleman. So, well, that's good to know. He certainly didn't play it. Yeah, I will. Uh, so you mentioned you listen to my husband's podcast. Uh, we hate movies. Uh, for a while, when they first started out, they had to use my laptop computer because, again, we could not afford things. So yeah. I had a computer. Andrew borrowed that. And I gave it to him with the stipulation that they were not allowed to do an episode on center stage was was my thing <sighs> at the time. I relinquished that almost instantly, though. Like once I sort of saw, got a sense of what they were doing, I was like, oh, OK, you're not being like mean about movies yeah you can do center stage but yeah at first it was off the table because of me <laughs> I was not we're, we're totally digressing into dance I was not a turner um as a kid I'm I'm a jumper I still am a jumper and like I'm I'm more flexible than anything so it's like Brie do a trick Brie do this balance or whatever um but I trained myself to do fuetes by doing 32 fuetes to that end scene where she just keeps <laughs> whipping around um yes but then yeah like so with the casting of Jesse though I think it's cool because like when I look back now as an adult dancer and someone who is very invested in ballet itself, I'm like, it's not realistic for her to be doing these parts and being in these productions. Like, if you were doing pre-professional productions that, like, is doing more than just a year-end recital, like, you're doing this performance and that performance, that sounds more like something that someone, like, 15 and up is doing. And so to have... And I think this might have been out of necessity because the actress that they cast as her, um, Anais Lee... She is a dancer. She is more primarily trained in hip hop and commercial dancing and ballet was I kind see. of a secondary thing for her. But instead of pretending, oh, she's this really amazing dancer, it's like she has to work just as hard as everyone else. And it becomes a plot of her, you know, accepting that you're not going to be the lead in everything. And I think that's that's also certainly a better lesson for kids, you know? Absolutely. My gosh, would it have been helpful to me to have had those Jesse episodes instead of <laughs> whatever Jesse episode of the 1990 TV show there would have been that I'm sure did not help prepare me for anything for, for losing out on parts in the school play and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was a kid who was destined to lose out on a lot of parts. Um, since we're going through the characters though, I, so this is something that I've had working on as a theory for a few years. I, I think pretty much since Anna Martin, I want to say publicly outed herself publicly was quietly just like, yeah, I'm gay or like, yeah, I, yeah. I have a girlfriend go you, Anna Martin. Um, I don't want to, like, I'm not one of those people who thinks that everything is queer coded. Like, even I know, like, for bisexuals like myself, that is our calling card of saying, this is queer coded and this is queer coded. <laughs> um, there are a lot of themes of chosen family in that, in these books, which is very, very special for queer people, particularly queer youth. Um, but I also um, see Marianne as just as queer coded as Christy now. Um, mm -hmm. And I'll explain. So especially as an adult, I see Marianne as being the heart of the series now. Um, and it's widely known that Anna Martin wrote a lot of her own traits into Marianne, being very sensitive, quiet, very private. She's also the girl who seems to experience the most trauma, like losing your mom at six months old and having no bond with your dad. And Mimi's yeah. death represents the loss of her only female role model. 
and then cap it off with a fire. Um, I, I have a student who lost her home at 12 in a fire and that is, oh. she's like 17 and she's still like telling me about like, oh yeah, I still like have serious problems from that. And I'm like, yeah, she puts Marianne through the ringer, but like she also treats Marianne with a lot of love. And she's one of the few youth characters of 80s and 90s books who goes to therapy and it's mentioned very casually and in this unstigmatized way. Like I remember even being in high school, it's like, oh that person sees a therapist like that's um so like marianne is um i see i see a lot of the messaging around marianne's narratives as like anna martin writing a letter to her, her younger self you know mm -hmm. and um i know that not every author surrogate is a literal portrayal of the author but the revelation that anna martin is queer has led me to wonder about marianne you know she's portrayed as the only girl with a steady boyfriend and everyone makes this big deal of it but a lot of the plots about Marianne and Logan in the books are about how Logan is really domineering and Marianne feels herself like losing herself in the relationships and the times when she breaks up with Logan are portrayed as very empowering, uh, more so than sad. And so it feels almost like a metaphor for compulsory heterosexuality. Um, and yes, that's definitely me reading too into it. But I also think it might be kind of a projection. And you see this in Christy as well about the discomfort of dating when you're that age and feeling like you have to date. Yes. And you're not ready yet. Mm -hmm. Like I absolutely, that was very much my experience around their age and probably a lot older, uh, was just not being comfortable or ready to date mm -hmm. uh, anyone. And I kind of hadn't realized until you were sort of putting it this way. But yeah, the fact that the first sort of like young person's relationship that I got to see was someone who was like, I'm not really ready for this. This is kind of too much for me. <laughs> that that sure came up a few more times for me uh, along the way. So yeah, I, I, you know, was very much a late bloomer in terms of, of all things like that. Uh, so, so this was a little more in line with my experience than certainly you know, the, the Sweet Valley books, they always had very steamy relationships yeah. with everyone and it was very dramatic. That was not my childhood university anything. Yeah. Uh, mine was much more uh, babysitter's club. Yeah, like, and for me, I was, and this is the most like mortifying thing a middle schooler can go through. I was a late bloomer with boys, but a normal bloomer with girls. And that was okay. terrifying. Um, yeah. because it's like, who do you have a crush on? And I'm like staring at my best friend, Katie, like, ah, no, no one, that, that guy over there, that, that guy who's smelling his own farts, like, um, <laughs> uh, but so I, and yeah, Marianne and Logan was probably my first portrayal of a fictionalized relationship. And I don't, maybe if I were to read back, I would feel differently, but I don't found she wrote about Logan in a way that was particularly glowing of it. And like, it wasn't a portrayal of unconditional love. It was a portrayal of awkwardness. Like, no, yeah, they were kind of friends who, who kind of liked kissing each other sometimes. And that was kind of it. You know, Logan wasn't dreamy. He wasn't the, the most popular boy in school or anything. I mean, there was a little bit of that sometimes in the way that other characters would be written like your Pete Black. But it was all, you know, slow. It was all a lot simpler, yeah. um, which, again, is, is certainly true for some people because it was true for me. And then you have Christy and Bart, which is like the opposite. Like I didn't 
even now, and my insistence on reading everything as a queer narrative, and yes, for sure, Christy is queer coded. Like, that's not up for debate. I hope, you know, in my, like, imaginary third season of the babysitters club that that never happened like at 17 christy and marianne are just gonna be like yeah let's start dating why not this is great we're, we're gonna go to wellson together like um but it with um uh with christy and bart i feel like that is more of a thing of not like she, i didn't even read it at the time as she doesn't like bart because she doesn't like boys it's she doesn't like bart because she's not like christy is physically a late bloomer like she's portrayed as being really short and slight and looking very young and she's not ready for intimacy yet and i i do love how much with the babysitters club club po- podcast focused on arm stuff do not know what arm <laughs> stuff is <laughs> push-ups yeah like i i don't know but like you know if, if anything my insistence on a queer reading is like christy is ace as fuck but um but it's also just that like it's it's okay to not be ready for stuff. And just because your yes. friends are doing it, like, cause that was such a horrible stage, like middle school of everyone pairing off into these little couplings and stuff. And yes. I, I remember being uncomfortable at the time, not even because I didn't like boys, but cause like, what are we doing? Like, this is so yeah. stupid. Like, yeah. I mean, that was, you know, the times when I did like a boy, it was just so like, what am I supposed to do with this? I can't go. You know, I don't have a car. What am I going to do? I'm 13. Like, yeah. OK, maybe we'll sit together and lunch. I don't want to sit with. And that was you see that sort of in the in the TV show. Yeah. The I don't want to hang out with boys. I want to hang out with my friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was something that I definitely related to up until twenties, I guess. I don't know. Oh yeah. Like I I didn't have time for boys because I was too busy secretly reading the babysitters club. Like Exactly. My my one little like quote unquote boyfriend in the seventh grade, like we both played the French horn, so we were obviously both outcasts and we went skiing together once and then he broke up with me because I drank soda and belched very loudly and he thought that was gross and he yeah. was right that is a very gross rude thing to do but uh um, but it's also a very bad reason to break up with someone unless you're a child so we were children which, so we you were know, so then that's it's fine that's but, the whole point is like they're but children. in case anyone is listening now and wanting to break up with their partner because they're belching <laughs> everyone belches yeah. it's fine like gas should be among your your lower re- your lower rug reasons hopefully they at least do something else to justify it uh, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, like I, I think, and I could be mixing this up, but even in the like, in the TV series, like it is shown, like Christy is very vocally resistant to a lot of things. Just like, especially with like Stacy being into Christy's brother, just like we're children, guys. We are children. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and the again, I don't want to say that the books fudge this because I'm sure they don't. What fudged it was my brain being nine and thinking, oh, these are all grownups because they're all grownups. But the sort of differences in the ages of children, like, you know, Stacy liking 17 year old boys. It's like, that's super wrong. And you shouldn't do that because you're 13. Uh, Is is, You know, the movie gets into that a little too, actually. So, all right. It's more my brain is like, no, 13 and 17 year olds are exactly the same. I have no problem with that. Yeah. Uh, but that was 
only what I thought when I was nine. Well, and also you, you like me and many others were probably told girls mature faster than boys. And all oh that my gosh. Yes. Shit. Um, so, <sighs> so if we're going through the characters, we got to talk about Claudia and um, oh my it, it will shock no one to know that I, the very Irish Brie Rody, am not Japanese or Asian. So I don't want to talk in terms that aren't familiar to me, but. I do think it's important to acknowledge documentaries like the Claudia Kishi Club, Instagram accounts like the now defunct What Would Claudia Wear, um, Yumi Sakagawa's comic Claudia Kishi, My Asian American Female Role Model, um, Susan Chang's special piece, How Claudia Kishi Inspired a Generation of Asian American Writers. The praise for, there is no shortage of praise for Claudia as an Asian character. And I will say that there is also some criticism of like the orientalism and how she was written, you know, with all these always the description of jet black hair and perfect skin, even though she eats all this candy and almond shaped eyes. Almond shaped <laughs> eyes, exactly. But like I hadn't had an almond yet when I started oh. reading these books. And so now every time I'm like, oh my Claudia Kishi still. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was a big chocolate covered almond eater as a child. So we we were a peanut household oh. more so than than almonds. I think my parents don't like them. But yeah, like they, they're, there's undeniable Orientalism in there with the way Claudia is described. But, um, you know, just last week when talking about, you know, a much worse example of this with um, South Park and saying like, maybe these guys should stay away from topics that aren't familiar to them. Um, you know, like, no wonder um, Matt Stone and Trey Parker write plots about LGBT and specifically trans people terribly. They don't seem to have any trans friends. Or even like when we talked about It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, like um, you're not going to hit it out of the park every time. And the portrayal of Carmen, the trans woman, was really not great. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I, I've always hesitated to say you can't write this unless you are from this group because I think there are ways you can do it. And I think Anna Martin is a generally a really good example with how she writes Claudia. Um, so the comic... Um, Uh, Claudia Kishi, my Asian American female role model, uh, mentions that there were very limited Asian and even fewer Japanese role models for girls at the time. So the three Asian role models the author mentions are Margaret Cho, who is Korean, uh, Trini Kwan of Power Rangers, uh, who is Vietnamese, may she rest in peace, and finally Christy Yamaguchi, who is Japanese-American figure skater. And she was the epitome of grace and femininity and a sharp contrast to Claudia. Like, there are so many... (laughs) Accounts you read of like I'd never seen a, an Asian character like Claudia before, and yeah, that rules. Um, there, uh, I found this quote from the Bustle piece: "How Claudia Kishi inspired a generation of Asian American writers." So. And though Claudia isn't defined by her ethnicity, her background isn't outright ignored either. Young adult author Sarah Kuhn, who related to Claudia as a Japanese-American woman growing up in suburban Oregon, pointed out that Claudia's ethnicity actually informs many of her character storylines. You can't just swap her out for a white character, says Kuhn, who's best known for her Asian-centric heroine complex series. To Kuhn, Claudia's Japanese-American upbringing feels like an integral part of her characterization and not just an afterthought. To her point, Martin specifically explores Claudia's identity and tackles racism in some of the later books, Keep Out Claudia, for example, which saw a woman named Mrs. Lil refuse to let Claudia and Jesse babysit their children. So, I mean, Keep Out Claudia was an interesting book because that was kind of my first introduction to a lot of racism. I live, in, I grew up in a very white area. Um with a lot of anti-indigenous racism where I where I live, but I didn't really get to experience a lot of that or witness a lot of that until about high school. I think where 
keep out Claudia misses the mark, frankly, is that it starts to compare, um, you know, Asian and uh, anti-Asian and anti-Black racism to like not wanting someone with divorced parents. I'm like, you didn't stick that landing, sweet Pete, or whoever wrote that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, Jean Ho, an L.A.-based writer who also grew up admiring Claudia, also appreciated Martin uh, Martin's depiction of Claudia's family, an aspect she found particularly true to life. One of the most striking things I remember about her was that she actually had a really close relationship to her grandmother and that her grandma actually lived with her family, says Ho. In my household, we always had extended family members living with us temporarily, she explains. I feel like that's a very typical Asian American or immigrant experience living in a multi-generational situation. Um, and I think Claudia was the first portrayal I saw of someone who did live in an American multi-generational household. Yeah, I don't remember if that would have been the first, but I mean, otherwise we're talking like maybe, I don't know, did they live with their grandpa for a little bit in Little House on the Prairie or something like that? I'm not, you know, certainly uh, a meaningful multi-generational relationship in a family. Absolutely. Similarly, uh, Claudia was the first where I came across that and in real life that wasn't anything that I knew or had mm -hmm. uh you know similarly I'm British very very white I can't speak to a lot of this and I don't want to pretend to but I will say that for me I loved learning about the little bits of Japanese culture that we did get from the books mm -hmm. I was totally fascinated it, by it and loved Claudia uh and loved every single thing that I could learn about her and her entire family, mm -hmm. uh, especially Janine. Janine is another uh, family member who is just one of my favorites. Yeah, I... Yeah, she's so funny. Janine in the books reminded me of my brother because my okay. brother is also like a kind of super hyper-competent genius who cannot socialize at all. And um, he won't mind me saying this because he's very open about this, but my, my brother at... How old is my brother? 36? It'll be 36. Just recently got an autism diagnosis. And uh -huh. um, it's the kind of thing I'm like, yeah, okay, Janine's definitely autistic in the books. But um, yeah. And so you realize, and that even you can reread Janine in a much more um, affectionate way because it's like, she doesn't, she doesn't hate Claudia. She's not condescending. She just doesn't know how to express herself, you know? Exactly. She didn't know how to connect with them. I have almost nothing in common with Janine. I am not super smart. I am not any of these things, but I am an oldest sister as well to a younger sister. And, you know, again, could not be less similar in terms of the things that are presented as their differences in the, in the books, but very much had a Claudia and Janine relationship where it was, you know, keep out, you're too young. I don't, I'm not interested. We're different in these ways. So, you know, mm. we'll just sort of coexist as much as we can, uh, which is not the case anymore. Now we're quite close. But growing up, sisters are tough. Oh, they are very much like, yeah. um, I mean, my sister and I are five years apart. And that might as well have been 15 years apart when we were, you know, pre-high school and even when I was in high school and when she was in uni. And now she might as well be a month older than me, you know, um, and e and that is even with her having a very different life than me, like having a child and, you know, being a physicist or whatever. Like that's uh, we live very different lives, but it's like, oh, yeah, five years is nothing like that's that's less than the age difference between my husband and I. So, yeah, um, but and you want to talk of amazing TV show upgrades with Janine. It's like they really 
they made her really funny they made her really fashionable and they made her gay like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she's such an upgrade on the tv show oh, that's yeah. another uh that actress was also just incredible i i don't have a bad note to say about any of the cast on that show yeah um but i also just want to anytime any of them come up talk about how good they are <laughs> and and it was cool what they did with the character of ashley wyeth like instead of making her a middle schooler she's a high schooler that like claudia really like looks up to and is imp- and it was also cool because it even beyond giving Janine a love interest, it was that it gave Janine something else to do and someone else to bounce off of, you know? Yes. Yes. It wasn't just school. It wasn't. Yeah. Yeah. It was a great upgrade, a great decision on the show's part. I mean, we can talk about now that whole episode of um, Mimi dying was (gasps) brutal. Yeah. I, so I, have a confession to make. I didn't watch season two of the Netflix show until this past weekend, okay. actually. And it's been out for quite some time because I wasn't ready for it emotionally, uh, which I guess just sort of explains a lot about how my 2022 is going. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I was kind of holding out. And then, of course, when it was canceled, it was like, well, now, you know, I am the only person who's still not the only person. Plenty of people didn't watch it uh, that I still had new babysitters club was so, uh, so exciting. So, uh so I've just now seen those episodes and I had not known that I was going to have to watch Mimi leave us. Yeah. I was not ready for to watch Mimi leave us. Mm. It was so beautiful and so heartbreaking and I'm still so sad about it. Yeah. Um, Amoda Tomato was um, really, really like, I kind of feel like the first season, if we're going to give like a cast MVP, like the first season belongs to Malia Baker. But the second season, that's that's all about Claudia for me and her yeah. like saying, like, I don't want to feel my grief. My grief is horrible. And like uh, for for anyone who's been following me and knows that like in 2018, within the span of a few weeks, my best friend from high school died and then my grandpa died. And, um, you know, I can so relate to mind you, this was at 29 and not at thir- at 13, but just like, oh, I'm going to go out on the world's longest bike ride and then I'm going to go to a dance class and then I'm going to do 10 hours of work. Like, and that's, that's kind of uh, a very realistic thing, but then to see a 13 year old have to do it and also deal with it very realistically. And, um, oh man, it really cuts through you. And like to see Janine even kind of, it's a very emotional scene because she's talking about like, you know, mom shut down, dad's just trying to support her and I can't talk to anyone it's very emotionally, but emotional, but it's also very smartly laying out again for a young audience. These are all the different and very valid types of way that pe- ways that people grieve. Yes. Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah. And you don't always get a lot of that in media that's aimed for children. Uh, too much of it is just, you know, this is sad. And then we do the sad episode and then we feel sad about it. And then we're a little less sad at the end of it. I love seeing people angry. I love seeing people have complicated emotional responses to stuff Mm -hmm. uh it's great it's great that kids can know that that's okay and not have to work it out in therapy like I did. <laughs> yeah, these kids are going to be okay, you know? I like, know. Oh, like when I talk to my students and they're like, oh yeah, I'm going to be late. I have therapy. And I'm just like, good for you. Because again, if good you went to them. therapy in high school when I was a kid, you were you were a weirdo. So yeah, um, 
Yeah, I mean, season two, I, there were a few things I wish they'd, I wish they'd brought back. Morbid of Destiny. Um, yeah. I really wish they'd brought back little Bailey. Um, she was such a delightful surprise in the first. Because yes. not only did I gain a Bailey, I lost to Jenny Prezioso. <laughs> <laughs> like, I had forgotten. Uh, so uh, Marianne Saves the Day is one of the ones. I actually didn't reread. I listen to the audiobooks oh. that I cannot recommend highly enough. Elle Fanning does them. They're oh. excellent. Quite good. She does the first five. Um, so that is to say that I, I did get back in with the Prezioso family and I had forgotten that they were kind of all as much of a pain in the butt as they were in. And what, a, you know, that's, uh, again, I, I guess this episode is basically just called Brie and Chelsea Talk How Much They Loved the Netflix Babysitters Called TV Show. Holy shit, but, yeah. What a beautiful way to sort of take something that is maybe not, you know, it's not that it's bad. The Preziosos weren't bad people, but what a nice way to sort of take, oh, here's characters who where all we do is sort of make fun of how they're annoying. Mm -hmm. Let's make this something beautiful instead. Let's yeah. let's try to change something that's kind of just a little negative and maybe doesn't need to be there and make it uh, something Again, beautiful, very you know, celebratory. The, the, like, oh my goodness, just perfect and perfect for Marianne and Malia Baker. Just completely nails that episode, uh, as does um, whoever it is who plays Bailey. Hey, Sharply, what is his okay. name? Um, okay. And I also think what's great is instead of dealing with like a little trans kid coming out or a little kid experiencing gender confusion, you're seeing a trans girl who's already out. And not only are we um, getting through that, like, um, I don't want to say uncomfortable stage, but like, you know, you do it doesn't have to be a trans 101 how to support your your little babysitting charge through your transition or whatever. I think it's just as important to show uh, a parent who is unconditionally supportive of her trans daughter and has already accepted this and, you know, her, you know, former former clothes are her old clothes, and that's it. Yeah. And um, and also, what I think is kind of beautiful about that scene is that Marianne doesn't seem to get it right away, and she, you know, talks to Don about it after, but she rolls with it, and it's like that's what yes. you got to do. Like, um, yes. the there's a term that's been used, like back when I used to work on in the marketing industry and report on the marketing industry. And I'm not sure I dig this term because it feels like it comes from focus groups and not actual LGBTQ people. Um, gender creative kids is yeah. the term I've seen used. And um not sure how much I like that. Um, it was like, it, it's a thing that I've tried to look into, like how to make the dance industry a bit more inclusive. Because, you know, I have had students who in the middle of the year have kind of come to me like, hey, I'm using they them pronouns now and I want to right. change the the uniform I use and it's like I'll I'll roll with it but I'm also like okay what can we do to make this a better space for you you know what do you, like how do you how comfortable do you feel using this change room versus that change room should we change the change rooms like and I I feel like maybe it's because I wasn't exposed to that stuff growing up you know even like I always say being being bi or being gay still doesn't mean you're very knowledgeable about trans issues. And sometimes I feel like people equate the two a lot. I like my first real exposure to a trans person was Isis on Top Model. Like, OK, that, that was my first exposure to a trans person who wasn't used as a joke. Um, yeah. yeah. And then shortly after, I, I made a really good friend who had just come out as trans. And so that was like my my 101. But like I look at the kids now. 
And they they just understand so much more and they have so much more tools in their toolbox. And so I think that's a great update for 20, 2021, 22. And also like not to bring she who must not be named into it, but as you know, people who grew up with Harry Potter and loved Harry Potter can't relate. I was never into Harry Potter, but I'd feel genuinely very sorry for people who especially queer and trans people who grew up with that being their favorite book series and bringing them comfort in times when they didn't have it and you know teaching them about themselves and now they have to deal with that author doesn't want them to exist and so at the very least i'll say anna martin is here for you baby because like she consulted on the series she approved every move they made and so i like that because Maybe we weren't ready to say, you know, this person is gay or this person is trans in a 1986 book, but we're ready yeah. to say it now. And so we don't have to just code it. Yeah. And it it makes more sense that that's uh, their experience as babysitters. But I also like that it's it's about their experience as babysitters. They're not making it their story. Not to say yeah. that, uh, you know, that there's there's no sort of like uh Okay, we the BSC fixed trans rights, yeah. you know, which which, you know, many pieces of media when you're trying to do, uh, you know, what what we sort of call a very special episode, very <laughs> special book or whatever. There is a lot of that tendency to sort of wrap it all up in a bow. And and the show didn't do that. It it presents a situation. Marianne handles it beautifully. And then that's that's the end of the episode. Mm. And that's kind of the way to do it uh, without sort of making it a little too uncomfortable and making it seem like you're saying something that you don't mean to say. Yeah. And frankly, as a babysitter and as like someone who's working with children and being their leader, that's how it should be. Like it is their story. Like I, I learned yeah. very early on as a dance teacher, it is not about me and the epiphanies I'm having and the lessons yeah. I'm learning. I'm literally being paid to teach lessons to these kids. Like they're not here yeah. to kids, whether they're queer kids or kids of color or disabled kids, they're not here to teach us lessons. You know, they're just here to live their lives and, you know, like, and yeah, it was a really cool way to learn it. I also um, found that with um, there was one updating of a plot that I really liked, and it wasn't so much anything about identity, but it was Dawn and the Impossible Three. Because mm. in the book version, and um, this is one I did remember because it never sat well with me, like Dawn kind of like, or M Mrs. Barrett kind of just like, oh, I'm sorry, I promise I'll be a little less disorganized or whatever. And Dawn just kind of accepts it. Um, I really like actually that that became a lesson about putting up boundaries and standing up for yourself and saying, no, this was not appropriate. And we never hear from those characters again, which was kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's nice to see that and nice to see the idea that you don't always have to accept everyone's apology. That's that's a big statement to be able to say and and something that I really could have been told <laughs> around the time that that I was reading these books that maybe that would have sunk in and Again, just just knocked a few years of therapy off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, I again, talking about the series and friendship, um, again, the reason I kept going back to the BSC even after, you know, I got into my little women phase is because unlike a lot of other elementary intermediate level books, BSC is ultimately about friendship. And I know a lot of people complain that at a certain point with the books, it started like jumping the shark and becoming not about babysitting and stuff. I always contended, even as a young person, it's not about the babysitting. It's about them being friends. Yeah, you know? absolutely. And like, it's about the club, not the babysitting. Yeah. You know, contrast that with the Sweet Valley series, which I did read. I actually, again, when I went through my darker, edgier stage when I was about 10 and 11, I read the 
like the new Sweet Valley High ones uh, with the like cool like the the real girls on the cover, not the illustrated okay. ones. Uh, and it was it was there, very darker and edgier. Um, there were some really great dark and edgy Sweet Valley books. I, there was a series where there are these this girl who's trying to become one of them. Oh, I remember that. And murders tries to murder one of them. That was some straight up and days of our lives. It's fantastic. It's the best. <laughs> so yeah, uh, like uh, I I did like the Sweet Valley stuff for a while, but I wasn't a loyalist to it the way I was to the Babysitters Club. And I feel like the babies uh, Sweet Valley High. When you look at it, it's really bitchy. A lot of it, or even yes. the middle school iterations and stuff, are very very bitchy. And um, it's. Like the BSC, even though like they do get in some fights and everything, like ultimately, pardon me, ultimately it is about being there for your friends and like, you know, sticking, sticking with each other through it. Like I didn't have, I didn't have that as a kid. I, you know, didn't have those unconditional friends. Like I moved a lot. And also I was a fucking weirdo. Like I was, (laughs) um, you know, and could quote the Simpsons on a dime, but couldn't do much else. Um, yeah. But one of the, like, one of the saddest things about my childhood, but what pushed me to read it more and more, like, I put it this way, I was always looking for my babysitter's club. You know, mm-hmm. I was looking for my group of of girlfriends that I could just totally be myself around because yeah. that was a thing I was very jealous of, like, that, oh, they have all these different personalities and no one has to pretend to be like anyone else to fit in. Like, that's that's sure is cool. Yeah. Yeah. There's such a beautiful sweetness to their friendship mm. that that I think everyone wants, certainly at the time, but also now, mm. you know, I, I think if anything, the one babysitter that I didn't appreciate as much when I was young that I've done a total 180 on now is Stacy, because mm-hmm. I, you know, as a friendless, ugly kid, I was resentful of the pretty girls and the the sophisticated New York girls. And I was, you know, I was a poor kid from the country. And so it's like, no, I'm not supposed to like the blonde girl. Um, <laughs> I ended up like kind of looking back and looking at all the times. So I'm like, not only was Stacy much cooler than I realized, the girls really were unfair to Stacy in a lot of plots. <laughs> like, yeah. how dare Stacy have a life outside of the babysitter's club? <laughs> yeah. And there's, you know, lots of, I mean, I don't know, uh, you know, watching it now for all the times that they're like, oh, we get it. You're from New York. (laughs) As a person who (laughs) lives in New York, we do talk about it all the time. That's kind of all we have to do. So they and they live in Connecticut. They they get it. Let Stacey talk about being from New York. (laughs) I also like um, and uh, I I don't know. Do you ever read the financial diets? Um, They're they're a um, I I, I say that like that because I was reading some of the uh, Reddit money diaries until it was just sort of making my oh. brain explode and I had to remove myself from that part of the internet. So I'm biased toward the financial diets content because I've written for them a lot and they actually have, um, like it's more of a, I'll say, much more realistic financial lens um, and acknowledging a lot of great economic realities. Um, the founder and CEO of Financial Diet, Chelsea Fagan, is very kind. She's taken me out for dinner like when I went to New York on my honeymoon oh. and um I in turn went out for dinner with them when they were in New York and then they made fun of me for the fact that I say Zed. Um, <laughs> I forgot that that was a thing. Yeah, um, we don't say that. <laughs> but, um, but so uh, Chelsea Fagan, uh, also a um, also a New Yorker and a proud New Yorker, but she she has this 
had this tweet that went very viral that she still talks about. She's like, I was at I was at a bar and I overheard the bartender saying that his high school his high school did a production of Rent, but they weren't allowed to say AIDS, so they the characters all had diabetes. Yes, I <laughs> that. Oh my gosh, yes, I had seen that. So there's the popular- what I would give to see that production of Rent, where everyone is so desperate about taking their. I guess insulin for for their diabetes oh, throughout um, Christmas Eve. Yeah, I mean, I've read the popular theory about Stacy that her diabetes is um, a um, why am I why why is this word failing me? I have an English literature degree. Analog for AIDS or, or metaphor for AIDS? Um, I don't think it's a metaphor for AIDS. Um, I had not heard this theory, and that. Yeah, it sounds like a lot. I don't know. I think it's mainly the way that in the um, in the third book with Stacy, in which it talks about, you know, kind of the introduction to her diabetes and her backstory. She, you know, she did experience intense stigmatization from her friends sure. for having diabetes, and like her friends were worried it was contagious and stuff. And yes, that is how people acted about HIV in the in the eighties, and you know, we're seeing now a revival of that with things like monkeypox and the way it's largely putting um, gay male communities at the center of that. Um, and you, I'd say if using something like Stacey's diabetes as a metaphor for HIV AIDS helps you explain it to people, then go for it. Right. I really do think, though, when people say that, they ignore that diabetes is an incredibly misunderstood illness. Um, yes. Like my mother-in-law has diabetes and she is from the era like where she she was diagnosed in the era when people act like acted like, oh, you got diabetes. Oh, it's because you're fat or it's because you ate, you know, like yeah. shit. And my my mother-in-law is a very slight woman, um, but she carries a lot of shame because of it. Diabetes is also like I think a lot of people are like, oh, yeah, they act like diabetes is such a big deal. It is an incredibly stressful it's still illness. A big deal. Yeah, no, it, it absolutely yeah. is. And those days were written before you had things like continuous glucose monitors and stuff or um, the automated um, pumps, which Stacy obviously gets in the series, um, right. which like those that still seems like unreal to me i have 14 tattoos and i'm like no i don't want to poke this thing in me all day like <laughs> it's yeah they seem the same but i also have zero tattoos for yeah. that same reason so <laughs> um yeah like i i do think the way they again they portrayed it in the show in a really great way because they say at once like diabetes is not a big deal and that we don't think you're a freak for it but we also do understand how serious it can be and how like yes um and also like i have a, my sister has a chronic illness it is actually an off it is within the diabetes family they're called diabetes insipidus um not a lot of people have heard of it it's it's not one of the popular diabetes um it's um but it affects her fluid she came from a tumor on her pituitary gland which she had removed when she was eight and it affected her fluid fluid retention permanently. Okay. So she has to take medication up her nasolacrimal, na, nasolacrimal duct every 12 hours. And it's basically mm -hmm. like it shuts off a tap without it. Turns out if you can't retain fluid, uh, it's about three hours for you to fully dehydrate and die. That's what it would take. You just sweat and pee everything out. So wow. yeah, it, and I, I was surprised when I learned that it had anything to do with that because you normally think about diabetes and sugar or whatever, but it's right. it all has to do with your body not producing enough of the right hormones or enough of um, like enough of what it takes to keep everything where it's supposed to be. And yeah. so like I also know from like we couldn't go on road trips with my sister because her medication yeah. had to be refrigerated or like, yeah. you know, in 
in Canada, a lot of kids like for their grade eight year will get um, their grade eight Toronto trip where they get to, you know, go and spend a week in Toronto because like we're from the north and we don't get to do anything like that. My mom had to come with my sister because she had to get injections every night. My sister didn't know how to do that herself. And that was, I'm mm. sure, mortifying for her. Um, yeah. I lost out on my grade eight Toronto trip because of the first SARS pandemic. Uh, that was a, that's a weird one to look back on now. <laughs> yeah. That's, yep. um, oh, boy. What a different lifetime. Yeah. But so I think like when people say that about Stacey, like, oh, like her diabetes was such a prominent part, I guess um, they I think they ignore that everything about every character was exaggerated and was mentioned a lot. Like those chapter twos really give you they give you exactly. everything. Um <laughs> And, uh, you know, I think it's I think it's great to celebrate the diversity of people's different dietary needs. And Stacey was always offered a salad. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, I, you know what? I've got to ask, what do you think of Abby? So I actually where I stopped is basically right before Abby mm -hmm. started. So I've only come into Abby. I, I knew that shortly after I stopped reading, they brought in a new babysitter. I was like, oh, I should. Uh, go, but now I'm a very sophisticated 12 year old, and, uh, <laughs> you know, far too busy for that. What I was busy with, I don't know. Probably uh, Dawson's Creek was still another year away. I, I, I truly don't know. Um, yeah. So I only really know Abby through the Babysitter's Club Club podcast <laughs> and loved everything they brought to her. Um, you know, I, I, of course, I think it's great that there was finally a Jewish babysitter that was sort of overdue. Uh, I think it's great. She's not one that I happen to be as familiar with. It's sort of the same way I feel about um, the, I don't know, you probably weren't because you're not Americans. There wouldn't be as much of a need, but there was the American Girl books and dolls uh, when oh. I was a little younger than that. There are a bunch of those that I only vaguely know through like general positive feelings, but I had stopped reading them by the time their books came out. So that's kind of where I'm at with Abby. She's she's like a Josefina <laughs> to me. We have Canadian girl dolls, but they're all just corn husks glued together with maple syrup. Um, <laughs> Stop. No, I only learned what American girl dolls were when I was in my 20s. And I think that's because they finally started importing them to Canada. But I didn't know they were books, mm -hmm. actually. Um, they, yes, there's, there's about... Well, there used to be. Now it's... Uh, when they started, there were about uh, six or seven... Uh, girls at different periods in history, and they would write six books for each of them. And I loved them. But that's another note that I had uh, in here about the Babysitter's Club. Boy, were my parents glad that I got into a cheaper book series oh. because I begged for the dolls and they're $80. My parents oh my were gosh. like, absolutely not. Are we buying you a 1993 $80 doll? No. Uh, so when I got into the Babysitter's Club books and it was just, you know, well, here's some books. And every now and then here's a book with chain letters in it or whatever mm -hmm. those were they were like perfect this we can afford this we're interested in yeah i was not uh, a stop, doll stop kid. reading the the expensive doll i i wasn't either but i also just kind of wanted a, i don't know well there i also recently was looking at the website because they just brought back one of my favorite ones and i was like do i want an american girl doll as a woman entering my 40s I think I went with no, but I can't promise that I'm not going to change my mind. Um, I don't even know if you can see this, but I have a teddy bear um, and it's a oh. 
Do you remember in the 80s and 90s when Snuggle uh, Fabric Softener produ- started oh, producing? Yes. So my sister had a bunch of those and I always okay. wanted wanted one because I was a stuffed animal kid. I wasn't a doll kid at all. Um, yeah. And I always wanted them, but my sister was very possessive of them. And I finally ordered myself off one on Etsy for a depressing reason. Um, I have terrible nightmares. I just always have had issues with nightmares and I don't feel like waking my husband up. So I just need something to hug. And I'm just yeah. like... Like I, my best friend, like we just bought a house in October and my best friend finally visited and he's like, you have a teddy bear? Like you're 33 years old. I'm like, yeah, so what? Yeah, no, like absolutely. I I read the Babysitter's Club until grade seven and I have a fucking teddy bear at 33, you know? Yeah. (laughs) I might get a Molly McIntyre doll at at 40. I don't know. There's no. I I am on board. And also I will say this and I think, I feel like Christy Thomas would say the same thing. Guys are allowed to do that. Guys are allowed to get into their toy nostalgia stages. So, um, I mean, my husband is a model train collector. And so, boy, he's like fucking Reverend Lovejoy playing with those trains. Um, (laughs) But yeah, I mean, the amount of of boy toy figurines that I am surrounded by in this office is a lot. And I I loved that that was something that Rachel Schuchert pointed out in that Vulture interview, Mm -hmm. you know. No one ever makes fun of a guy for still liking Star Wars, you know, but things that girls like as a kid is sort of treated like a completely different animal. That's for little girls. And that means that is only for little girls and anyone who likes it after they are a little girl is weird. Yeah. And like bringing it back to what we're saying about like, you know, girls like being portrayed by older actresses and girls going through puberty faster, being told you develop faster. um, There is so much pressure for girls to grow up. And so much pressure to not go back to the things you did when you were younger. And like even more recently, like ever, ever since the 2019, like the year of the grief, I've been back to listening to the emo and whiny pop punk that I did when I was in middle school and high school, because I'm like, oh, like I, I always and I think every, every woman I'm sure can relate to this. Everything you do when you're young, you are pressured to leave behind at some point. And yes. I'm just like, I want to go and revisit this. I want to go back and immerse myself in this. And that includes the young adult novels I used to read. Like I recently reread uh, the young adult novel Speak. Um, okay. Re- did you? Okay. Not a lot of that people are familiar with Speak. Um, Bell. The movie version also was not very big, but it stars a very young Kristen Stewart. Um, okay. Yeah. It's. It's a wonderful book. It's written about like it's the aftermath of a girl who was sexually assaulted before she starts high school and how she kind of goes through. It's a super depressing book, but it's also like and Laurie Halsey Anderson is a wonderful young adult writer. I feel like she like and actually when I talk about reading the California Diaries, um, that was kind of my start of the transition into things like speak that were more accurate juvenile young fiction and stuff that like like I actually feel like. You know, I was very well prepared for young, for more quote unquote prestige young adult fiction after the Babysitters Club. So it didn't entirely hold me back as a reader. Um, yeah, hard recommend on Speak if you can find the movie version. I think the only other really famous person is Steve Zahn, uh, plays the okay, art teacher. I love Steve Zahn. I, he's a very <laughs> underrated guy. So he's so underrated. He makes everything better. <laughs> I uh, 100% want Steve Zahn to be in more things. Yes, absolutely. I, I love a good average looking guy. We stan. Yeah. yeah. And just consistently good mm-hmm. at whatever it is that you need him to yeah. do. I think I wasn't cynical enough yet as a reader to dislike the way Abby was brought in. Like now I read, you know, a couple, even a couple years later, I would read that as like, oh, great. You know, it's like, it's like Poochie on Itchy and Scratchy, like just 
exactly. Yeah. But at the time, I was excited because it's like, oh, they brought in a funny girl because yeah. I was the funny girl. <laughs> if nothing the- else, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was the funny girl. And yeah. um, you know, I liked that she played soccer because soccer was the only sport I could play. Um, and even that I was very bad at. Um I liked that she had a twin because I am fascinated by twins. Like, um, I'm a Gemini. I don't know. Maybe I was meant to have one. Um, (laughs) But she was also, aside from, I think, Krusty the Clown and Tommy Pickles, one of the only Jewish characters I I perceived as a young child because, like, I didn't know what, like, I'm from Northeastern Ontario where everyone is white and French Canadian and, you know, toss in a couple Irish folk and, uh, I did not know what it meant to be Jewish as as a kid. Yeah. So um, I loved reading about like even the, just the fact that she had a bat mitzvah and stuff and, um, you know, kind of getting the Hanukkah 101 thing from her. I loved that. Yeah, it's great that they had those things. And it's great that that brought that to people. I grew up in a very uh, Jewish part of Miami. Oh, cool. So so a lot of that was uh, stuff I, as a Protestant, kind of had a, a decent amount of knowledge on. Um, but not everyone does. That's not everyone's experience. So it's it's fantastic. Yeah, particularly in Canada, outside of Toronto and Montreal, there's really not significant Jewish populations. Like yeah. when I moved to North Bay, we had a synagogue there and that was the synagogue for all of Northern Ontario. And if you look up a map of Ontario, like Southern Ontario is like the little cattle skull down by the Great Lakes. Northern Ontario is everything else. So it's the rest of else. people, people, I think people would do like one uh, temple a month because it was such a long drive. Um, yeah. And like I had one friend in middle school who was Jewish, um, who whose dad was Catholic, his, his mom was Jewish. And so like he would drive four hours to with his wow. family to go to temple. Um, and wow. yeah, it's uh, so and I also feel like that was kind of a thing like and I'm not saying this in um in a begrudging way, like the, like, let's put in some diversity. We need a Jewish character because the Babysitter's Club was all about teaching girls about like the different types of people there are in the world. And so to have a Jewish character, hey, that's smart, you know? Yes, absolutely. And it it made sense for the development of the series. You know, the the sort of poochie cousin Oliver-ness of it is, of course, there with with the way it progresses, but at the same time, those were a lot of the stories that I really liked. Were when they, I mean, obviously they devastated me because it was the saddest thing in the world to happen when you were nine. <laughs> but when the kids would move, you know, Stacy leaves for a little bit, Dawn leaves, Abby comes. That happens when you're a kid. People have to move. Your parents decide they're moving, and so mm-hmm. you have to move away. I had that experience with friends moving, and was glad to have sort of some sort of understanding of how that was going to work through the babysitter's club what's funny is i was the kid who moved a lot like and yeah. um i think because i lived in north bay which has a military base and because i always tell people oh i moved a lot they're like oh you're you're an army brat i'm like no i'm like my dad's a fucking engineer <laughs> like uh it's that my dad was a very in-demand guy in in water generated power and um one of the things my mom used to tell me was like and she, when our first big move when i was 10 she kind of sat me down and she goes okay your friends are not going to care that much that you're gone. And what I mean by that is like, okay, like we're coming back to town for the weekend. People might not break their plans to hang out with you because your life really changed. Theirs didn't. And, you know, like they've moved on. I'm not saying this to make you upset. I'm saying this so that you will be less upset when no one cares that you're back in town. Um, And I was kind of thinking, 
Yeah, the fuck right, mom. The babysitters club taught me that friendship is forever <laughs> and they're going to be, it's going to be welcome back, They're going to make banners Stacey. for me. Like, it's a whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> as it turns out, mom was right. <laughs> <laughs> no, like, and that's maybe though, that is why I felt so comfortable like last year, just like going to my husband, like, do you want to move? Do you want to move two hours away to to in a farm town? And um, yeah. and it worked. So, um, well, Chelsea, uh, we have gotten to the lightning round, but I know you said you have some of your own notes, so I wanted to make sure we didn't miss out on any of your back end notes. No, I think I'm pretty good. I've been keeping up with it. I've been taking taking full advantage of your your pro uh diversion policy so i think i think i've caught up yes we are a pro pro digression and pro swearing podcast so. yes. yeah. all right so welcome to the lightning round i'll say don't overthink it but do over explain if you feel a need to okay which okay because and we've already talked about this a little bit but which psc member did you wish you were like growing up yeah stacy mcgill i wish now that i had sort of been a strong enough kid to sort of have that instinct that you had of like no, that's not me. So I don't like it because I think that probably would have been a little healthier for me instead of being like, gosh, life would be perfect as long as I were a Stacey McGill. Um, but yeah, maybe life would have been perfect if I was Stacey McGill. Well, I, I still see nothing to suggest otherwise, personally. If it's anything, any consolation, I think you're kind of living your Stacey McGill life now. <laughs> I it, it, That is the sweetest thing that anyone has ever said to me. <laughs> I When I, I did get a chance, this was a bunch of years ago, uh, to go into one of the apartments in the Dakota for an event. And it was very cool. It was a work thing. All my friends and I were like, oh my gosh, this is so crazy. John Lennon, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, guys, this is where Lane Cummings lives. (laughs) I was so, I was like, going to Lane Cummings house. I can't believe it. God, see, that's when I say you can't compare Toronto to New York. And I will say also, my city planning nerd uh, nerdishness will say you compare Toronto to Chicago. Toronto is the Chicago of Canada. Montreal is okay. the New York of Canada. Um, okay. It's on an island. There's boroughs. People feel strongly about bagels. Montreal is the New York of Canada. Um, but I like the Montreal bagels too. I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll add a New Yorker vote for a Montreal bagel. Hopefully oh, that nice. doesn't get me kicked out of New York, but they're very good. There's room for all sorts of bagels. They're coming for you. No, um, it's that I can't <laughs> imagine anyone doing a tour of Toronto and be like, oh man, I'm going where this fictional character did this. Like maybe going to Lee's <laughs> Palace. I'm like, I... I'm going to where Scott Pilgrim fought the fought the seven yeah. evil exes. Like, I can't think of anything else in Toronto. I'm going. I'm going to the real Kim's convenience at Queen and Sherburne. Okay, these are these are good things. Yeah. Yeah. Do, do Americans know Kim's convenience? I know of the show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a really good I, show. I, have, I hear it is. I have not watched it yet. It's, There's so much TV. It's kind of like the Babysitters Club in that it's a very sweet kind of like warm cup of tea. So, yeah, that's that's what I've heard. Um, I, speaking of comparing it to Canadian properties, I've heard that if you like Shit's Creek, you'll generally like Kim's Convenience. And I did love yeah. Shit's Creek. Kim, Kim's I actually like a little better because I find it a little less cloying than um, okay. than Shit's Creek. But yeah, so I think I alternated between wishing I was a Claudia and wishing I was a Dawn for kind of similar reasons. Like I always knew I was the weirdo offbeat kid. And even though I I didn't even, as as a white kid reading the books, I didn't realize how much of Claudia's like not fitting into her family was about not fitting into the image of an Asian child. I didn't, I just didn't fit into my family because I was a weirdo, you know? And so, yeah. but then also 
like Dawn, I was headstrong about causes from a very, very young age. Like, you know, I remember like watching the episode of Simpsons where Lisa becomes a vegetarian and wanting to go vegetarian and my mom wouldn't let me. And then I turned 22 and look at me now. Like that's that's so I became a vegetarian when I was 10 because of the babysitters club, because <laughs> something, you know, Dawn was never one of my go tos. But I was like, well, if Dawn does it, then it's good enough for her. Good enough for me. So I'll s- and my parents were not. <laughs> my parents would have never obliged. Um, they and even still like going to their house as a vegan, it's really hard. Like I have to bring all my own food because they literally just don't know what to do with me. Um, <laughs> but um, I think I also had a lot of envy for Dawn. Like once I read the actually when you read the California Diaries books, Dawn turns into a huge jackass. And what okay. you realize is that Dawn is the most laid back of her friends on the East Coast. But on the West Coast, she's a total type A pill. And it's like, <laughs> oh, okay, it's all relative. You need to go hang out in the Midwest or something and even out. Um, <laughs> exactly. There you'll be right in the middle. <laughs> but um, yeah, like I did think like with California Diaries, you get to see that Dawn is like really, really sensitive and like tries to control everything and doesn't want anyone to grow up and stuff. And that is something I can identify with. I was also jealous of anyone who lived anywhere warm. Like I, I'm used to minus 40 winters, um, like minus 40 Celsius. I don't know what minus 40 would be equivalent into Fahrenheit. Far too cold is is all I know. Yeah. yeah. I did grow up in a warm climate and sort of whatever... Dawn would talk about missing the the warmth and hating the snow. I was like, I have no idea what she's talking about. All weather is beautiful. I will not learn what snow is until <laughs> many years from now, and then I'll grow to hate it. And and how does how does that feel for you now? I, I mean, now I'm just sort of like, oh, geez, so poor Dawn. Go if if you're not liking it now, go. Yeah. Especially in the TV show when she's really having a hard time with spring. I was like, oh, spring is when it's beautiful. Dawn, get out of here. <laughs> or maybe that was in the, one of the books. I forget. Anyway, there's one of them where she's not digging spring. And I was like, no, that's when it's nice. This is the good time. If this isn't for you, then this is not for you. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> we've we've gone over this, but unless you want to reiterate or change an answer, which Babysitter's Club member were you actually most like in your youth? Mary Ann Spear, <laughs> top to bottom. I was a Mallory for sure. Um, I also think I was a little bit of an Abby, um, mm-hmm. particularly because I think a part I didn't realize until I listened to the Babysitter's Club Club podcast is that I thought reading Abby initially, everyone liked her. But actually, a lot of people find Abby a little annoying and stuff. And yeah. I, I was the annoying girl. Surprise, I have a podcast now. I was a friggin' annoying tween. <laughs> I was too. And that's a lot of the stuff that, Mallory being the annoying girl was was sort of how I felt like I related to Mallory as well. Yeah. So of the supporting characters, whether it's in the books, in the series, whatever, who's your supporting character MVP? It's got to be Karen Brewer. She's who brought me to the girls in the first place. And every iteration of her just gets better and better. Love Karen Brewer. All right. Um. This, again, this is kind of a cheat because it's elaborated on a lot with the California Diaries, but Sunny Winslow. Um, And I think Sunny Winslow is a great kind of like my friend back home. She was certainly more enjoyable than Lane Cummings. Like Lane Cummings always bummed me out when she was around because I'm like, she's so mean to Stacey. She's so awful. Like (laughs) um, I really think Sunny Winslow is a character who like 
she was so different. And like when she's introduced in the Babysitter's Club, it's like, you think Dawn's weird. Here's Sonny Winslow. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, in the California Diaries, she really goes through it. And like she goes through a lot of like, you know, we talk about a, a lot about how the Babysitter's Club deals with a lot of stuff in a very 101 kid appropriate way. I would say California Diaries is that for things like trauma response because Sunny Winslow's whole arc in the California Diaries is trauma response, um, mm-hmm. including like hypersexuality uh, as a trauma response. And so um, I love Sunny Winslow, but even if you were to just isolate to the Babysitter's Club stuff, I think she's a great like my best friend back home character. Yeah. So yeah, I did always like her when she popped up in the Dawn books. What is your favorite offshoot? And this includes both the formal spinoffs like Little Sister California Diaries, but also like the super specials, the mysteries. Yeah, I think I'm going to have to go super specials as a voracious reader. The fact that they took me about twice as long was good. (laughs) It felt, you know, more productive. Uh, And there's so many of them that I just loved. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, those those were kind of my favorites. I wish I liked the mysteries more because the idea that 13 year olds are solving crimes is still so funny and adorable. Uh, <laughs> but I was a big scaredy cat. So there were many of the mysteries where I would be like, oh, this is too scary. We're putting it away for right now, which is pretty sad because considering that they're uh, not at all scary in the slightest. But uh, but they seemed it at the time. It's just I'm I'm just remembering now that the um one of the mystery books is not really a mystery and it's in fact a really like sad thing that was part of the BSE canon which is Marianne and the Secret in the Attic. Oh my god. Which like uh, you know you talk that about very special episodes like um where Marianne finds out that she like her dad sent her off to live with her grandparents after her mother died and that's like that's devastating. And I remember it, like I might have been like eight or so when I read this. I'm like, this isn't what I signed up for, Anne. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then I remember telling my mom about that. My my mother, her father died when she was eight months old. Um, and my mom was the youngest of five children because Catholic. Mm-hmm. And um, she's like, Oh yeah, my mom did that to me when I was when I was a baby. Like after my mom died, she sent me to live with someone else for a while oh. and i'm like oh okay i guess that and she goes yeah she she didn't want me back at first i'm like what the f- oh my god the 50s are weird man yeah the 50s yeah. like people just parented like the wild fucking west like here toss this baby like uh, yeah any any of my parents uh stories from my childhood i'm like this is a very different time yeah. than the one you raised me in and now we understand why boomer parents parent the way they do because their lives were just inherently traumatic um exactly but yeah i think super specials were like my it's raining and i've got the whole afternoon um yep but I will also give like a second place shout out to Friends Forever because I think it really grounded the series before the ending and told mm-hmm. stuff that was a lot more like realistic in that it's like the girls are getting ready for high school and they are drifting away from the club and friendship is yeah. becoming more complicated. And I just think it was a great way to after, you know, some of the crazy things about haunted houses and, you know, Vacations that you take with your friends, which, you know, for me, were definitely not a thing as a kid. Um. <laughs> no, like unless it was a church trip. Yeah. Which even then I didn't go on until I was in high school. Yeah. No. Yeah. But so it was nice to bring it back down and kind of calm it down before saying uh, saying goodbye. And so I think it was just a very smart thing of the series to do. Yeah. Um, 
of all the BSC members, and actually, you know what? I'll say of all the BSC members and beyond just the club itself, whose on-screen adaptation in the Netflix series do you think was the most successful? Ooh. I think I'm going to have to go with Christy. Christy, I, I thought that, um, that Sophie Grace was incredible. Christy's a hard role to get right. She is. You know, she's written as being pretty unlikable a lot of times, but you still have to like her because she's the lead in a TV show or, or your book. Uh, and that, and I, I think that's a really tough line to walk at any age, but for a 13-year-old, that's even harder. Uh, but they totally nail mm. it. It's, it's exactly the Christy that I pictured in my head came to the screen and it was and it was amazing yeah I loved and you know I, I'll bring this episode up again because I thought it was one of the strongest but Dawn and the Impossible 3 when you see her just totally have a breakdown and yeah. that was one thing that never the series never did uh, like in the books maybe it never had to but explain why Christy is the way she is and why she can be really controlling and why she can be so off-putting to people around her that like she has like a, a parent leaving you is not not a big deal like it's right exactly. it will imprint you and um i thought i thought she was super brilliant in that i will say though that my biggest success because it brought the right mix of comedy and vulnerability is richard spear mark evan that's Jackson. a really good answer oh, too yeah he was and like there i knew when they announced that casting i knew he'd make me laugh like I love him in yes. The Good Place. I love him in Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Um, but I had no idea that he would make me sad and feel for him. Yeah. And it's there's a couple, like, there's the scene where he's in the car talking to Marianne at the, at, in the hospital parking lot and saying, like, you reminded me of your mother. And, like, you you see that vulnerable side of him that you don't get to see in a lot of those comedic roles. Um, and because also in the books, Mr. Spear kind of was a bit of a caricature and, you know, just he was the stick in the mud that no one really liked. I, I didn't like reading about plots with him. Um, right, exactly. Uh, the other thing that's been that was so interesting about the Netflix show is uh, how much younger it turns out all the parents are than everyone. Yeah. Like when they were announcing, oh, Alicia Silverstone is going to be Mrs. Thomas. I was like, I'm sorry, there's no way that math is correct. But then uh, you know, and, and going back to the books, uh, you know, when it was Mark Forstein playing Watson, I was like, he is way too young for Watson. Yeah. All Watson is described as is is starting to go bald. Yeah. I was like, oh, so he's like 35. <laughs> like, what? I thought he was an old man. Yeah. Well, and realizing <sighs> that, no, like, I am. I am like, I'm just like. I will be 33 on Saturday and I'm just getting to the age where if my parents um, or if my, if my friends tell me that they're pregnant, I'm just no longer like, oh, my God, are you OK? Yes. Like, <laughs> yes, exactly. Like my friends could be full on married and text me like, guess what? I'm pregnant. I'd be like, oh, my God, you need an abortion. Like uh, and <laughs> but I'm like, I. So like my friends, we generally I think this is just our generation in general. We're not having kids at 21 and 22 anymore. Um, sure. I think it's hilarious because my mom had me when she was 34 and she's like, oh, I felt like I was so old to have you like, you know, 29 when she had my sister. I'm like, 29 is such a reasonable age to start having children. But in yeah. the 80s, it wasn't um, because yeah. I'm thinking like or like my husband, who's 10 years older than me, it's like you could reasonably have a teenager and it wouldn't be weird. Yeah. You know, uh, and so that's that's always a funny thing to me when I think like I could have 
tweens by now. Yeah. Like if if I had gotten pregnant the year I graduated university, I could have a tween. That's yeah. fucked up. <laughs> like it's insane. I can't imagine. I don't even begin to I mean, I don't have children. I I don't begin to feel old enough to have a child, let alone a slightly older child is mm-hmm. incomprehensible to me. My cat just my turned niece. 13 and uh, that's about all I can handle. I'm like, okay, yeah. he's a teenager now. Thank God. I'm going to like give him a later curfew, you know? Yeah. My nieces are getting a little older and even that is sort of like, I'm sorry. So now you're, you're a speaking adult. What is, I, 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 I'm not ready. You're having this. opinions. Like that's the thing about a certain right. age, especially the age that these kids are in the book is like, they have a worldview now and ooh, yeah. it's it's intimidating. So yeah. um, if there was one book you wish could have been made into an episode of the Netflix series, which would it have been? Uh, I would have loved to have seen the New York super special, as I mentioned. Yeah. I think that would have been great. I also really loved that super special uh, where they all put on Peter Pan. I think that would mm-hmm. have been a really fun one. We do get a lot of theater behind the scenes in the camp stuff. So, yeah. um, So a lot of that's there. The other thing I would say, uh, it would have been interesting to see how they handled Christy and Bart uh, in yeah, this totally. iterate. So that would have been a, a, a good one to see in mm-hmm. my dream season three. I do like that they sometimes used aspects of other books. Like n- none of the books, aside from maybe Claudia and the Sad Goodbye, um, were and Christy's Great Idea were direct. Um, right. Like it, they, they would take elements of, you know... Um, I'm struggling to think of it now, but like they would take certain elements of certain books and put them into the episodes. And, you know, a lot of them were kind of similar in name only, like the Phantom Phone Calls, for example, which is good because the ultimate uh, lesson in the Phantom Phone Calls as uh, as a book is if this guy is borderline stalking you and terrifying you, it's just because he likes you and you should go to the dance with him. Um, So, you know, better for it to work out this way. But um, yeah, for me... (laughs) Little Miss Stony Brook and Dawn is... Uh, That's a... Uh, so yeah. a fun fact about uh, friendless, untalented, and not that cute Brie is that in high school, I did do a pageant. Um, <gasps> and it was it was for a dance competition where you had to do a pageant to go for a title. And okay. it was the kind of thing where with dance, again, not particularly talented. Now, this was on a national level, so I'm at least a little proud of this. I was fifth place out of like six or seven for the dancing. So not... Not That's incredible. Yeah. Not not great. But in the pageant stuff, I fucking rocked it. Like, cause <laughs> I can stand up straight. I can speak clearly. I've like I've seen Drop Dead Gorgeous so many times. I know what plays. So many times. Um, yeah. Um, and so I, it was like the biggest thing. I'm like, oh yeah, I'm getting a second runner up based solely on being an ass kisser. <laughs> um, and I, I like to think I was the Sabrina Bouvier of that, uh, of that pageant. Right. Um, that one I really enjoyed as a kid and I found it really funny to me. And one of the things that I look back on, I'm like, oh, this would have been so funny to see play out is that Jesse and Mallory are the ones who are kind of like sitting back, just like, this is fucking stupid. You guys all suck. Oh, watch. You guys are all like, they're like Statler and Waldorf just commenting on the whole thing. Amazing. And I love that. Um, whose style wins, Stacey's or Claudia's? This is tough, but Claudia. I have gone back and forth. And I think if I were to be reflected in how I dress today, I'm actually, I'm a bit of a Stacy. Yeah. yeah. I, I aspire to Stacy's style. I loved when 
the teacher asked her, you know, oh, is it weird that I kind of want to dress exactly like him? She's like, kind of. It's like, <laughs> all right, show. No need to call us out. Yeah. Uh, but uh, so as much as I do love Stacey's, I feel like I'm picking Claudia's for originality. She makes so much of her own stuff. So uh, she has uh, fewer resources than Stacy. Mm-hmm. So I'm picking Claudia. I spent but both both such great options. I spent all of high school chasing Claudia's style. Um, and, yeah. <laughs> you know, my parents, like, I make fun of my parents a lot on this podcast. They're the most wonderful people. But, like, my mom didn't want me shopping at thrift stores because it was like, no. Yeah. And it was a weird thing of like, she grew up poor and so she's like you i don't want people to think my kid is poor like and that's that's boomers for you um so like anytime i found something like the least bit weird or quirky or different it went straight into the trash um and i remember like going to toronto for a class trip when i was 16 and going to kensington market and coming back with giant banana earrings and i'm like this is some claudia shit yeah um and despite the fact that i have no desire to slow down on the tattoos otherwise style wise i've become very normie and very girly and so um stacy like i and especially i love the way they outfitted her in the series too style icon so um, which ba- Babysitter's Club member is the most likely to start a podcast? I feel like it's got to be Dawn. Yeah. Yeah. Dawn <laughs> is on a soapbox most of the time and yeah. she knows how to talk to people. I also say that feels like a Stacy move though, because Stacy is the smart yeah. one, you know? She's, yeah. uh, she has a lot of opinions. She asserts herself like a grown up. So it's, it's one of the Stony Brook transplants. Yeah. I, I also think that to give one native a possibility, I think Christy would like being able to talk and not have anyone talk back for a long time. So and she would, if she had one, it would definitely be a solo show. And she would be a good producer, too, because she gets shit done. Yes. OK. Yes. We've already talked about at least one. But uh, did any parts of the TV, of the Netflix series make you cry? And if so, share one. All of them, all of them, all of them. But the one I'll share uh, is... Um, the finale of this season two, uh, how it completely caught me off guard because at, at least as far as I recall, this doesn't happen in the books with Watson deciding to adopt mm-hmm. uh, the Thomas it kids. It does not. Uh, bold like a baby. I didn't see that coming and it killed me. I was just sobbing, loud heaving sobs to myself <laughs> in my apartment this weekend. Yeah. 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 Watson, Ooh. Watson really became like a bit of a hero in the series. Such a great character. Yeah. yeah. He's a delight. And like it, I'm happy whenever he's on screen. I'm I'm happy for him. And it, it also just, you know, so much of, of what I remembered, at least from the books are the ways he makes everyone's life easier is just sort of because he's really rich, <laughs> but it was so nice to see, you know, he really makes her mom happy. He really makes a, an attempt to connect with all of his his stepchildren and, and adopted children uh, in the books. It was also, uh, you know, considering I was watching it being like, we've got about five minutes. When are we bringing Emily Michelle in into this? <laughs> uh, the twist on that and having them adopt uh, the the Thomas kids, I thought was really nice. Yeah, I, I thought that was definitely not something I expected. So it was yeah. really great. Um, I'll go, because I've already talked about one that made me cry because it was sad. I'll go with one that made me cry with joy, uh, which was um, in Christy's big day with the wedding when Christy gets her first period um, yeah. and uh, the way her friends help her. And yes. because the, sh- the book series never tackled periods um, because no. like 
you couldn't talk about periods until like five years ago. Um, Yeah. And like, I remember like my, my best friend, Alex is a guy and he like, we climbed together. We were climbing partners. And I told him, I was like, oh, I can't go. I have my period. And he's like, oh, it's weird that you're telling me that. I'm like, I'm an adult. Like, um, but uh, so for me, you know, talk about late bloomer. I started mine at, in a mall food court, New Year's Eve, when I oh, was no. 13 and a half, like, oh, yeah. And oh, I'm so sorry. Blake. Oh, and, and my sister was in town from university and I went up to my sister and I asked her, I was like, Hey, I think I started my period. And cause also when that happens, you're miserable all day, which also the, it, the, the series shows Christy is like emotional and shit all day. I was yes. miserable all day. I thought I was sick. And then I go up to my sister. And I'm like, hey, can you help me out? Please don't tell mom. And he, immediately she goes and tells my mom. I'm like, God damn it, Erica. Um, but, That's what you got to yeah, do. But, um, <laughs> so I was, I was very jealous of that. But again, I was like, see, this is why like a group of girlfriends, even if you were like a little tomboy like I was, girlfriends are so important, you know? Yes. And, and you know, you, you said how we didn't really talk about periods until about five years ago. For the most part, that was even kind of true, at least in my case, among girlfriends. I mean, yeah. we could talk about it, but not really. There was certainly, I didn't ever feel like if I needed help with my period that I could talk to anyone about yeah. it. Uh, and would have loved to have, have seen that and known that. Because I, despite being uh, a late bloomer in terms of everything else, did get my period before most of my friends oh, uh, at 11, hard. which was tough. That's yeah. Hard. Um, and was so unprepared. Mm-hmm for what it like did not even know it was going to last more than a day and I was like I'm sorry this is gonna happen for how long and uh, you're the eldest child like that's hard too yes, yeah. exactly exactly so it was just my me and my mom learning how pads worked mm-hmm. she had had to learn her first one on a tampon so the whole time she was like no you're getting it so much better than I am <laughs> I was like yeah, I know I know I know oh, um, that's cute but yeah like I loved any any opportunity that like that that the series took to display the power of girlfriends is is wonderful. Yes. Yeah. So if Anna and Martin were standing in front of you and you could ask her one question, what would it be? You know, I'm sure she gets sick of it, but it's got to be, where are they now? You know, <laughs> I mean, at this point, they're probably late 40s, maybe, I guess. They would be a little, you know, it depends on, on what math we're using from when yeah. as to where they are, but I'd love to know. <laughs> I, I guess you know? I would look at them as being born in 73, which would make them 48 to 49. Um, yeah. Yeah. So oh I think, I mean, I would want to ask her something silly, maybe like, what's the deal with Sabrina Bouvier? But um, <laughs> if, if anything, I would love to ask her if you, if you could have written more openly um, and, you know, maybe written about things that were taboo in 1986, like what's the one thing? you would have wanted mm-hmm. to write into this series in the 80s and 90s, you know, before you did uh, the series. Yeah. Because I'd love her insights. You know, she's, I respect what a private woman she is. Um, and that's also why, like, I wanted to make sure I read that it was, like, it was her that confirmed that she was queer, right? Because otherwise it feels like a bit like forced outing, but I think it was her that confirmed it. Yeah, I'm not sure the order of all of that and if there was some forced outing. Uh that I don't recall, but I know at least that there that there was some confirmation, if not it leading from her declaration. Yeah. Um, and I and it's maybe one of those things where it was never really a secret secret. You know, like I think the term they use is transparent closet. But um, mm-hmm. 
But yeah, so I, I like I like how much she has expanded on that through the series, but I would love to know, was there anything that you regretted not writing or anything that like, you know, whether it was about Christian Bart or um, yeah. about any of the kids or anything, or even Logan being teased for being a boy babysitter, like, was there anything that you wished you could have written that you weren't able to? So mm. very curious about that. Okay, so I'd also love to know where in Connecticut Stony Brook is, you know, it's supposed to sort of be near Stanford, but also it's sometimes it's on the water. Other times it's not. Sometimes it's very close to New York City. Sometimes it's not, (laughs) you know, give me a county. And I'm I'm guessing Fairfield County, but it's a guess. I'd love I'd love confirmation. I've never been to Connecticut. So I just that's that's the thing. Like any any state that I haven't been to, I'm just like, it's it's all just kind of smushed together. It's right. It's it's just kind of smushy. Um. Yeah. (laughs) Connecticut is is deceptively large. And because the traffic is terrible, it always takes you much longer to go through there than it should. And these are the times when I've had times to think as I look at road signs, not moving in traffic. I'm like, wonder where Stony Brook would have been. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like New Jersey is a similar way. Like, it's deceptively large, right? Like, I have a cousin who yes. lives in New Jersey, and I'm just like, I look, I'm like, oh, that's not close to anything. You're not close to anything. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay, so we've we've now come to the peak, and I'll, I always say the disclaimer on the show is peak could mean when you were most into it, when it was most like itself, when it was highest quality. So what is the peak of the Babysitter's Club for you? So I'm going with the, the the first as to where it peaked for me, just because otherwise I love this series and I love these girls too much to, to pick anything else. Uh, for me, it was right around when Dawn first moved away back to California before Abby comes in. That was for whatever reason when I decided I was done. I'm sure it's because I felt like I needed to be older and more grown <laughs> up and all sorts of things that I'm sure I was really, really unhappy about. But that was that was when it worked out for me. Um, yeah, it's been hard for me to think of this because also like reading them a little bit out of sequence and reading them after they like kind of catching up. Um, I will say that for me though, this might sound a bit unconventional, but a quality peak and a peak in even the series doing what it does best is, um, the portrait collection, which was 1994 Mm. through 1997. And it was all the girls offering their autobiography. And I feel like Anna Martin always had a real interest in telling the girls stories, why they are the way they are. I mean, that's why we love those chapter twos. Um, And getting a chance to really expand on all the girls. And I think of like, there's something really thoughtful about the um, stories that she chose to put in there. Like I always think of the story about Claudia you know, being given the assignment to draw um, a self-portrait and she comes back drawing a butter, having drawn a butterfly. Um, and the stuff about like Dawn and like, you know, watching her parents split up in California and stuff. And like, just the idea, like her saying to her readers, I know how much you love these characters. So I'm going to tell mm-hmm. all their stories to to you. And it was, it was a really cool thing to do. It's the kind of thing you can only do when you have a series that is that massive and that expansive um yeah you know sweet valley did those kind of things as well i remember yeah the the bsc extended universe the bsc cinematic universe um (laughs) exactly oh my gosh like a gleep glossary babysitters club thing um would love (laughs) eric is actually going to be on the show uh next month which is exciting talking about babysitters club as well absolutely we're doing a gleep glossary of the babysitters club um great great so if you were to recommend three books or tv episodes to a person who has never experienced the babysitters club before what would they be 
Oh my gosh. I mean, the TV episodes, I would just say start at the beginning and let it wash over you like the warm smile and blanket that it is. Um, but I think at least with the books, I don't know that I necessarily would say that you have to start at the stop if any, or at the start, because God bless those chapter twos. They tell you everything you need. <laughs> so, um, so book wise, I think I went with, uh, Marianne saves the day. Mallory and the trouble with twins, not just cause it's your, yes! I love that one. <laughs> any of the books that had an extended shopping montage were always <laughs> way high up there. Uh, so Marianne saves the day. Oh, that's another one I would have loved to have seen the TV show get to though. Is Marianne's makeover. Yeah. Marianne. Uh, so, all right. So Marianne saves the day, Mallory and the Trouble of Tins, and Dawn on the Coast. Those would be the top three. That's a great choice. And yeah, I, I agree. The shopping montage is fantastic. Um, Mallory's perspectives are always so interesting, especially early, because she is an insider who is still very much an outsider. And I feel like that informs yes. her narrative a lot. So I also had Mallory with the Trouble, Mallory and the Trouble with Twins. Because being the first book that I read, I think if there's something about it that hooked me, it had to hook other people. Um, and then I will say, if you want the best, the best kind of all around episode of the series that kind of is a good full cast showcase, but, you know, strong, um, like strong individual performances, Marianne saves the day, the TV version. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then I'm going to be, you know, different for the sake of being different is... Um, <laughs> Uh, California Diaries number 11, which is Dawn Diary okay. 3. Um, and that is, um, it's Sonny's mom dying from Dawn's perspective and, uh, mm. you know, Sonny pulling away from Dawn and all that good trauma response stuff. And I'll just say like, that's your good example of Anne M. Martin and her ghostwriters when they get into the darker edgier stages. So, um, now... We, we evaluate this in different ways, but how big would you say is the gap between the best of the BSC and the worst of it? You know, granted, I didn't go back and reread all of the books, mm -hmm. but I don't think it's very wide. Uh, you know, writing 100 plus books, of course, there's, you know, going to be all sorts of variations. Uh, and I'm sure there's somewhere the quality feels less, but it's kind of always in the books, it kind of always is what it is, uh, which I know is, is just one of those really empty things that doesn't sound like I'm saying anything, but I feel like I am. Uh, so I don't think, I think it's, it's not so much a gap. It's just the Babysitter's Club is the little piece of media that it is, that is there for people when they find it mm -hmm. uh, in their, in their tweens. I don't know. I, I'll say, like, in terms of if I'm thinking, like, essential consumption or whatever, uh, and how much does this add to the value, I'll say if the the best of the BSC, I'm sure, is, like, you know, my favorite books plus the series, because the whole series is lights out. If that's an A+, plus, the yeah. mysteries are a B- minus to C+. Plus. Like, that's yeah. kind of the, that's the gap for me, is the mysteries, you could totally just those out of existence, yeah. punch, punch them away. Yeet them. I feel as the, the same say. way, but I know other people loved the, yeah. the mystery. So I, I, I think that it's, uh, you know, it's 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 one of those great things that does sort of have something for everyone in in its own way. Um, yeah. Granted, I'm also there. There are variations on the Babysitters Club that I'm ignoring in this question, like the uh, the 1990 TV show and the movie, yeah. which are 
you know, if if Meh. we're looping those in, then yes, the 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 gap becomes wider. Yeah. But if you just pretend they don't exist, like I am, then it's then it's fine. I think the movie is worse off in terms of aging than the 1990 TV series, mainly because that the TV series had that iconic song. Um, oh my gosh, which I still know because uh, they did it on one of the Babysitters Club Club podcasts, <laughs> and I was like, huh, I don't know names of people who I know and see every day, but I still know every word yeah. to say hello to your friends. That's, I love that's brain space. I wish I could use somewhere else. I do love the Kate Nash cover of it as well in the second yeah. season. What She was the uh, perfect pick for it. Like Perfect. Yeah, um, that was another just instant waterworks moment mm-hmm. where it, like the <laughs> my eyes just sprung very, very yeah. big leaps. It, I think the second season came out the weekend that we moved here, which was Canadian Thanksgiving. Okay. And okay. I, um, I needed to have our TV set up because I'm just like, look, I'm exhausted. I've just moved to a new region. I just want to watch my Babysitter's Club. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, that about does it for this episode of Peak Show. I want to sincerely thank Chelsea Jupin for coming and talking BSC with me. This might be one of the most like pure conversations I've gotten to have oh. on Peak Show. This is this has been an absolute delight and dream come true. Thank uh, you. So, yeah. um, well, Chelsea, before we let you go, tell everyone um, where they can find and follow you. Um, and also, if you have any causes or anything you want them to support right now, because um, this is I guess this would technically be my, my birthday episode. So that's when I always say get all mutual lady bitches. <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, I want to su- plug and support. Happy birthday. Uh, <laughs> Uh, no, you can follow me on Twitter at Chelsea Jupin. That's my only public social media. Uh, and then two organizations that I have been doing a lot of work with recently that I do want to plug. Actually, three. Uh, sorry. So you said one three and is, I took three that as three. Three is so good. Uh, uh, I'm a member of the PEO International Sisterhood, which is a philanthropic educational organization that funds uh, uh, scholarship and grant opportunities for women, as well as the Women's College in Missouri uh, Cotty College. They're a great organization. Highly, uh, highly recommend learning more about PEO Sisterhood. The Northern Manhattan Improvement Coalition is a lot, uh, you know, I'm going from an international organization now back to one that is my teeny tiny little neighborhood in Manhattan. But they're an excellent organization. I just went to their benefit last week. They're doing so many great things to help uh, lower income uh, and, and, you know, all sorts of residents of Northern Manhattan and the Bronx. Uh, and then the third one is the National Brain Tumor Society. I, my day job is uh, I am a marketing consultant and I'm doing some work for them now and learning uh, how to spell all the different tumor names as, <laughs> as well as many other things about the incredible work that the National Brain Tumor Society does. Um, yeah. As the sibling of someone who survived a brain tumor, I say, hell yeah. Like, yes. that rules. So as for me, I've been your host, Bree Rohde, and we're just having a ball with season two. We are coming close to an end, but we still got a few coming up. We've got our episode on Mel Brooks with Kelsey Goldman uh, coming up next, well, in two weeks from now. And then we've got Coen Brothers with Gina Radcliffe. And of course, we've got our whole dang month on Star Wars as our super month this season. And then uh, if we could fit in our Jimmy Stewart episode, we do. But if not, that's the end of season two. But you can go back to our <laughs> back catalog episodes on David Fincher, The Saw Movies, Taylor Swift, Adam Sandler, A Holding Month on The Simpsons, and more. You can follow me on Twitter at prune underscore underscore Tracy. You can also follow this podcast, Peak Show, at Peak Show Pod on Twitter. Don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Give us five stars or go to hell. Thanks. 
Special thanks. Sorry, that one does always make people laugh. Uh, special thanks to Jared Daly for our show logo and all of its art. Thanks to Jack Dunn for composing our original theme music. And thank you for listening. I've been B. Rody. Say hello to your friends. 